Kurt, can you go to YouTube? Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah, we should. Mayor, we're ready. And go down that video. Okay. And I'm supposed to stay muted or not stay muted? Stay muted. Stay muted. Stay muted. I think. You're good. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> All right, Brad, are you okay now? I don't have video, but. I do have video, but your, it doesn't look good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's your no, match I got sure. You flip your little thing. I thought I was young yesterday. Not as much. <laughs> as a, as a red light here. Oh, just wait. You got a lot coming. You guys are lucky. I just got my voice back. Uh, welcome to the Tuesday, April 5th, 2022, Lawrence City Commission meeting. Um, first, we will have uh, some comments from Porter or Neil. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everybody. Um, just have a few housekeepings for the Zoom, housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for the meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This will, allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Uh, and uh, next, I think we'll still have um, some explanation from Sherry about public comment. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, yeah, just a few notes on public comment. Uh, when the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals attending in-person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. Please remember to state your name before speaking. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. And I think I still need to do a roll. So, um, Vice Mayor Larson? Here. Commissioner Finkeldye? Here. Commissioner Littlejohn? Here. Commissioner Sellers? Present. Excellent. Oh, Mayor Shipley also here. Um, that brings us to approving our agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Uh, is there any requests to change the agenda, or do I hear a motion to approve? Move to approve. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Uh, any opposed? That passes uh, five to zero, uh, which brings us to the exciting portions of our evening. Um, we have some proclamations. Um, and first, we'll have um, some comments um, from Rabbi Tiktol. Mayor and City Commissioners, happy to be here. Very briefly, I just want to explain who I am and what we're celebrating here today. My name is Rabbi Zalman Bechdel. I moved from a little town to New York City to Big City Lawrence 60 years ago. And what brought me here is to be part of the world's largest 
Jewish organization called Chabad. We have five and a half thousand centers across the globe. Well, as every state in the U.S. eight centers in the state of Kansas, and I have the great privilege serving serving the Indian ones in the last the last 16 years, providing resources and support to members across the community. Today, we are celebrating a very special event. Next Tuesday, April 12th, it's the 120th birthday of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, known as the Rebbe, who is also known as the greatest Jewish leader of the 20th century. The Rebbe is the only rabbi who received a congressional gold medal. The only rabbi who has a national holiday declared every single year. Since President Carter, every president of this country has declared the Rebbe's birthday on education and Shiri Day USA. I'm so blessed this year, not only is President Biden doing the same, last week Governor Kelly declared that as well. But the city of Lawrence will also be declaring April 12th, 120th birthday of the Rebbe as a day dedicated to education and sharing. And I want to share the purpose of this proclamation is to understand and emphasize that education is not just about knowledge and preparation for a career, but education is really about creating a generation based on ethical and moral values. Rebbe's message that we'd like to share with our community that every single citizen of this great city can do our part to do a small good deed that can change the world forever. It's the small acts of kindness that will make this world a better place, especially in the time that we're in right now. I'd like to conclude my remarks by taking the inspiration into action by placing a point in the charity box. These are little arcs, and we have thousands of these all over Lawrence. This arc stands for Acts of Random Kindness. We hope that this proclamation will encourage the great citizens of this great city to do our part to perpetuate the Rebbe's message of one act of goodness and kindness to change the world. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Yeah, hopefully um, you've seen these around the community um, and keep an eye out for them. That's a really incredible program. Um, so with that, uh, thank you again. I will read the proclamation. Whereas a quality education is one of the significant foundations for the continuing success of our state, our country, and our society at large. And in the city of Lawrence, we strive for the betterment of all our citizens through an increased focus in education and sharing. And whereas the educational system must also focus on building character by emphasizing the cultivation of universal moral and ethical values that have been the bedrock of society from the dawn of civilization, including the values known as the seven Nahide laws. And whereas one of the leading global advocates for the advancement of education, the Lubavitcher Rebbe Rabbi Menachem Schneerson of Righteous Memory, stressed the importance of moral and ethical education as the bedrock of humanity and the hallmark of healthy society and strongly urged that education be reinforced by the inculcation of strong moral values. And whereas in recognition of the Rebbe's outstanding and lasting contributions toward improvements in world education, morality, and acts of charity, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. And for more than 40 years, the President of the United States has recognized and honored the Rebbe's vision each year by proclaiming it Education and Sharing Day USA. And whereas April 12, 2022 will mark 120 years since the Rebbe's birth, the
The date will be celebrated across these United States and around the globe in tribute to the Rebbe's vision, guidance, and leadership. And whereas the Chabad Center has been at the vanguard of outreach and support in the city of Lawrence, Kansas, bettering the lives of countless citizens, uniting a variety of faiths and religions for the common purpose of making the world a better place. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, mayor of the city of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim April 12, 2022 to be education and sharing day and call upon government officials, educators, volunteers, and citizens to reach out to those within your communities and work to create a better, brighter, and more hopeful future for us all. Thank you so much. Uh, next, we will proclaim the month of April 2022 as Fair Housing Month, and I believe we have uh, Katie Barnett here uh, to make some comments for us. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, read the proclamation. Whereas April 2022 marks the 54th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act, which provides in Lawrence equal opportunity for all residents in the sale, rental, and financing of housing and prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, age, marital status, disability, familial status, color, religion, sex, and national origin, sexual orientation, and gender identity. 
And whereas the city of Lawrence supports efforts to eliminate discrimination in housing by working to educate all its citizens on fair housing rights and responsibilities and through the enforcement of fair housing laws, including chapter 10 of the code of the city of Lawrence. And whereas it is the mission of the city of Lawrence to create a community where all enjoy life and feel at home and to utilize effective strategies with a commitment to equity and inclusion in all aspects of daily life for all citizens. And whereas the City of Lawrence Human Relations Commission has been in existence for over 60 years and continues its goal to embrace inclusion and promote goodwill and collaboration across the spectrum of all people of Lawrence. And whereas the month of April is officially set aside as Fair Housing Month throughout this nation. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, in conjunction with the annual national commemoration, do hereby proclaim the month of April 2020 to be Fair Housing Month in Lawrence and ask the people of Lawrence to join me in reaffirming our obligation to fair and equal housing for every person who resides or wishes to reside in our city. Hey. Thank you again. Um, next, we have Autism Awareness Month. And I hope we have Sharon Spratt here. Oh, there you are. <laughs> CEO of Cottonwood. Hi, I'm Sharon Spratt, CEO of Cottonwood. And I'm honored to be here this evening to uh, recognize Autism Awareness Month. As many of you know, I think that Cottonwood uh, serves individuals with all, all types of disabilities. Our, our mission is to help people with disabilities to shape their own future. And so we, we provide services to nearly 600 individuals throughout the year through our, our broad array of, of services, many of which are individuals with autism. So uh, we want to take this opportunity to, to recognize that. And uh, I also will just let you know that Cottonwood is recognizing and celebrating its 50th anniversary this year in 2022. Oh, cool. So, having sorts of events. Excellent. Yeah, no, of course. And thank you. And I, it did come to my attention that you will be retiring. Is that correct? I will be. I will be in a couple months. Uh huh. And um, our. Our board and the search committee has uh, selected a, a new CEO, Colleen Hummelberg, starting the first part of May. So, exciting time. Well, thank you. I wanted just to thank you for your commitment to helping people with disabilities um, navigate this world. So, thank you so much. Okay. Now, proclamation. Um, whereas autism is a complex mental condition and developmental disability characterized by difficulties in the way a person communicates and interacts with others. And whereas autism can be present from birth or from form during early childhood, typically within the first three years, and as a lifelong developmental disability with no single cause. And whereas people with autism are classified as having autism spectrum disorder, ASD, and the terms autism and ASD are often used interchangeably. People with autism have a set of symptoms unique to themselves. No two people are the same. And whereas autism affects one in every 44 children and is more common in boys than girls, and there is no medical detection or cure for autism. And whereas 
We encourage the development of resources in our community for children with autism spectrum disorder and their families. We must also remember that these children become adults with autism spectrum disorder who also deserve our support and the opportunity to thrive in Lawrence and Douglas County. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby recognize Saturday, April 2nd, 2022, as World Autism Awareness Day and proclaim the month of April 2022 as National Autism Awareness Month in the City of Lawrence and urge residents to learn that about autism and what you can do to support individuals on the autism spectrum and their families. All right. So thank you again. Thank you again so much. All right, and we have another one uh, to proclaim April 1st uh, through April 21st as Read Across Lawrence. And I think we have our Soper. Kristen, sorry, I know you by your Twitter account. I apologize. Kristen Soper, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Leah, Leah Newton, our Oh, great, thanks. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Mayor. Um, I'm Leah Newton, and I work in Reader Services at LPO. Uh, myself, Kristen here, and many others at Lawrence Public Library have been working really hard on Read Across Lawrence this year. Um, as some of you may already be familiar with, Read Across Lawrence is sort of like a flagship program that we do every year where we pick one book and we encourage the community to all read it together at the same time. And then we curate like a whole slate of events um, around themes of the book. And uh, this year we picked Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Um, Interior Chinatown is a really brilliant and unique work of satirical fiction. It's actually written in screenplay format. And in it, we follow Willis Wu, who is a young Chinese-American man kind of struggling to make his way in the world. Um, we follow him on this journey as he deals with things like his aging parents and poverty and racism in his industry and in his country in general. Um, we picked this book for a variety of reasons. It's very accessible, it's diverse, and Charles Yu has this amazing ability to bring levity to like some really difficult and hard conversations. Um, so the hope is that everybody reads this together and it spurs some really thought-provoking conversations, but also is a really unique, one-of-a-kind, fun reading experience. So um, thanks to KU Libraries and the LPL Friends and Foundation, we've already gotten this book in the hands of many eager patrons wanting to read it. Um, and we do have a full slate of programming in April. Uh, a big one that's coming up is going to be David May. He is a professor of film and media studies at KU, and he's going to be doing a presentation called Generic Asian American, Hollywood's Invisible Role. Um, this ties perfectly into a central theme of the book, which is representation um, and visibility. Uh, another central theme, of course, is martial arts and kung fu, and so we're going to have this really fun program on Saturday, uh, April 16th at 2.30 on the library lawn, and it's going to be Ronin Stunt Company. They're from Kansas City, and they're going to be doing a stage combat class on the library lawn, and that's really exciting to us because it's been a while since we've been able to have one of those big events out there, so that should be a really fun day. Um, and then, of course, we're going to have Charles Yu to do an author talk on Zoom on April 21st at 7 o'clock. So uh, we have these great bookmarks. Um, if you got a book, there should be one in there. And these have all the events listed on them. And there's a QR code on the back that will take you to the website to register for any of those. 
Um, so again, many thanks to our sponsors, KU Libraries and the LPL Friends and Foundation uh, for their continued support that makes us a success year after year. Um, and I hope you all enjoy the book and that you come to some of these events. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, proclamation. Whereas Read Across Lawrence is an annual community-wide reading event that encourages everyone in Lawrence to read and discuss the same book. Now in its 18th year, events commenced on April 1st and will close April 21st. And whereas in 2022, Read Across Lawrence features Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, a story about Willis Wu who dreams of playing Kung Fu guy, yet he does not see himself as the protagonist in his own life. Interior Chinatown explores the themes of pop culture, assimilation, and immigration. And whereas together with the Lawrence Public Library Friends and Foundation and the University of Kansas Libraries, Lawrence Public Library will host book discussions and events for patrons to explore the themes in the book. And whereas Lawrence Public Library encourages all to read the book, attend events, and reflect on the themes of race, assimilation, and immigration that the book speaks of. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim April 1st through April 21st, 2022, as Read Across Lawrence. Thank you. All right, thank you, everyone. That was really incredible. Woo. Good way to come back. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, a lot of them. Okay, let's uh, move on then to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items that commissioners would like to see pulled from our consent agenda? I'm not seeing that. So it's so much easier when you guys are right here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, are there any items that a member of the public would like to have pulled from the consent agenda? Not seeing anything. Um, is there anyone um, on Zoom, Sherry, that you see who would like to pull something from our consent agenda? Michael Allman. Yes, good evening. Item C7E. Like that's all the uh, items. Uh, seeing anyone else? Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Do I? Can I? Do I hear a motion? I move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of C7E. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Um, that passes five to zero. Um, that brings us, Michael Allman. Um, would you like to speak to us about? C70. Yes, thank you, uh, Mayor Shipley. This is Michael Allman. I'm speaking for myself tonight. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I emailed City Manager Craig Owens and the mayor as well um, about an item as far as the agenda goes. And what it had to do with was when this would be uh, the section 5A1, if you want to look at that, in the city commission procedures, has to do with public comment. And when somebody sends in written public comment, if they send a letter 
the uh, procedures require that to be identified with their address. And that's perfectly reasonable that, first of all, they live in Lawrence. Um, but if somebody sends it in by email, then, quote, the address that is published with the agenda, on the agenda, to the World Wide Web is the email address. That's different than somebody's physical address. And I would like these, the, these uh, guidelines to reflect that that tends, as I would think, to be a very serious breach of, of uh, privacy. Um, physical address is one thing when it's publicly known. If somebody's going to harass you, it's quite difficult and time-consuming and cumbersome to actually come to your house. But if you have their email address, as you know, the World Wide Web is very porous and there's lots of hacking and eat junk mail. I would hope that the city commission would consider um, having person's email address blacked out when it's published in the agenda. So that's basically what my request is. Um, it, uh, you know, it could, it could also say in there that it should, the, the uh, comment should include the person's physical address to be clear on that. And then further on section 5C, three minutes I think is a bit too short. <laughs> uh, unless there's a whole lot of, of uh, people wanting to comment, uh, it's very difficult to create the context, provide analysis, um, you know, come forth with a recommendation and a request all in three minutes to do something very meaningful, you can barely touch the surface. So if it's an item that doesn't have a whole lot of, of interest and there's more time, maybe that could be extended, give, it, give the mayor the option to extend more time. But if it's a very popular item with a lot of people lined up, I'm then stick to three minutes. So the, my main question though, had to do with the email address. So thank you very much. And I don't know if I went over my three minutes. <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah. Just, just a few seconds. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, okay, let's make sure, let's see. Are there any questions from commission? Uh, yeah, it's, would there be anything stopping us from blacking out the email? I guess this would be directed to Sherry. So, um, and in this section, we ask for contact information. We don't ask for address. And typically what we do, if an individual asks us to remove their email address, then we do so. Um, there would be no reason we couldn't do that, but we don't specifically ask for an address. We have had individuals who we've provided that to, and so they have just provided a phone number if they didn't want their email address shared. So we can either um, you know, bring this back with some language or we can just include that direction. But um, we don't ask for an address specifically in here. It just says contact information. Actually, Sherry, in A1, it does say... Well, it says address or telephone number. Yeah, address or telephone number. Yeah. So it's one or the other. Exactly. But it sounds like he's wanting if someone provides electronic comments to have the email address redacted. Yes. So that would be more of a... 
sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Sherry. I was just saying that's just more of a an SOP than I don't know if we need to spell that out. But I'm open to mm -hmm. any other open to other interpretation. Any other questions? Let's say. No, yeah, it's a, I, I would hope it could be that simple, as Commissioner Sellers said. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, make sure before we make up our minds that we don't have any public comment. Is there any public comment on this? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, I'd like to comment on that. Um, I've had someone reach out to me using um, the email just because, you know, I, I send in stuff and my email's been attached. Um, also, I, I'm against using physical addresses because I'm going to just, I mean, it's easier, it can be easier to um, harass someone online, but it's, you can do a lot more damage being in person. You know, look what happened to our mayor. I mean, isn't, didn't you all quit putting addresses of the commissioners because of the, of, Oh, I mean, not not this mayor, but uh, Nanda when she got the rock from her window. And um, I, I think it should be optional to black out an email because also you can just use an email that doesn't matter to if you're going to email the commission, maybe just um, I, I do think there is some benefit, though, of people being able to reach out to others who have made comment at the at commission meetings. So I, I think I'd like to see it be optional to black out. And I don't, I mean, if you do start blacking out emails, I don't think we should be getting addresses just, and also, it, I mean, it's not necessarily to be to harass, but what if someone finds someone attractive and they're kind of not all there in the head, you know, it's just, I I, th I think less damage will come from emails than physical addresses, but I, I I do see that some people would want their email addresses blacked out. So I, I think it should be something we should consider. And also, when it comes to the time limit, I'm okay with increasing it to five minutes, but I, I see benefit to keeping it not longer than five minutes. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. Um, any other public comment in the room? Um, is there any public comment um, on the Zoom on this item? No, Mayor. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Uh, you started to say what your thoughts were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no yeah, no, it's, uh, I think Chris, uh, makes a great point uh, if we can make it i mean i don't know if it is it already optional pretty much sherry right now um well, so currently in our permanent resolution that we had we didn't have this language we did include it in the temporary resolution that we had in place and now that we're getting rid of that we thought we liked having that language so we were going to add it into the to the permanent resolution but again it just asks for a person's address or a telephone number and that's primarily to have contact information in case there's follow-up that the commission asks for or if they want to reach out to someone providing that comment again if they just send an email we attach it as is we have had the request to remove it and we do um, and just ask that they provide a phone number if they don't want to provide a physical address so Think that we're already addressing it we can do a better job of providing that direction um, on our agendas and on our website when people submit comment um, or we can include it in the resolution if that's what you would like 
Commissioner Sellers. Well, I was I was thinking through this because I go back to just whenever you're providing testimony to the state, I think people a force of habit is that, oh, here's my email. I'm just going to write my testimony in my email. When you're providing testimony to the state, to a committee, you need to provide it in a PDF form. So it's not embedded into the email. So the PDF has your contact information as far as whether or not you're identifying your address to show that you are a constituent within the governing area um, and or email or phone number, um, but it outlines. But I think what we're talking about here in regards, oh, I'm, I'm assuming what my, Mr. Allman's talking about here, which is why I'm taking a step back, is that people quickly fire off an email and that's their testimony. And if we're getting to, if we want to have a, a sense of decorum or a, a formal process in providing testimony, written testimony to the city, then you can say it needs to be provided in a Word document or a PDF so that the information that you're providing is address or phone number, and that's already there. So folks who are sending it via email, we're not printing the email out, we're printing the attached document, which is your written testimony. So you're providing a formal document. I don't know if we want to get that far into the weeds, but that's best practice on the state level. And if we're wanting to prevent all of these different nuances to, well, if it's an email, redact this. If it's this, then I'm putting my phone number in there, but redact it when you send it. I think if we have a more clear, succinct ask for testimony that it be written, I mean, that it be provided in a Word document or PDF with either your name or address and leave it at that. I'm not sure that, well, okay, I'll say I've, I'm just not used to making it that formal and I don't want to create barriers. I know that it's real, relatively easy to turn something into a PDF, but. And I don't think it's a barrier because if you're going to provide testimony on the state level, that's the requirement. If you're providing state, if you're providing testimony to a congressman or a senator, that's the formal presentation. So I think it's a way of practicing good civic engagement. And I get it, folks, you want to meet people where they are and you want to fire off an email. But I think if you're truly providing testimony on a topic and it is something that you're passionate about and you're wanting to get the information, I think there has to be a formal process to it. I get meeting people where they, I, I get it, but I'm a little bit of a stickler on this is that this is a way to mitigate all of these other variances that we're we're trying to provide to accommodate something that is going to become even more of a headache for our, our clerk staff. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm not sure we need to be that formal either. I, I think we could um again in this policy, this policy is simply what comes to us. This is not necessarily what we publish, which I think we don't have to have in this written policy. Mm -hmm. How we receive it, how Sherry receives it, I think we having their name and address. I think if we add on there, not necessarily in the policy, but add that if you'd like your email not to be published, please stay as such. And even your physical address, if you do not want that published, stay as such. And then Sherry can redact it. I think otherwise, um, I think it's been working pretty well. And I think we give people the option there. But I don't yeah. think that has to be in this policy. Yeah, I, I would agree with both um, the mayor and, and Commissioner Finkelnack. Although the, the idea of having a 
very formal process, which is outlined by Commissioner Sellers. I can appreciate that. I do think we have one. Uh, you know, I consider it to be pretty formal when I'm reading Resolution 7424. There is a formal process. Now, it may not be the detail that some would like, but I, I would hate to see us get this overly complicated. And just adding in there the idea that they have the option of having that redacted, that's fine with me. The Chair, you agree we can do that without adding it to this formal policy, you could have that language? Would you uh, want it in the policy? Uh, no, I, I think that's, that is, um, we, we provide a lot of direction on the agenda, so I think that's fine. I guess my only question is, are you wanting to add, when we say address or telephone number, are you wanting a physical address? No, I think it's fine. Or are we good with that language? Yeah, I, I think, think it's good. I'm okay with the language as it is. Yeah, I just think we want to give them the option to have that redacted from the agenda if they ask. Yeah, I'm glad at least one of my my ideas landed. <laughs> Except for one instance in my limited experience, obviously, Commissioner, I'm sorry, Vice Mayor Larson has a longer experience. Most people say I live in Lawrence or I work in Lawrence and they indicate what their interest is. And very rarely is it um, someone from outside, very rarely, but I don't know, has that been your experience? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rare, yeah, yeah. Okay, as uh, Sherry, did we give you the direction you need? Uh, yes, so it's good as is, but provide more direction on our agendas and on our website. Right? Yeah, Good. I'm okay. fine with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I would move to adopt resolution 7424 update. I guess that's it. Move to adopt <laughs> resolution 7424. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, that passes, I think, five to zero. I didn't hear you. <laughs> Did you say aye? I did. I just don't have much of a voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think we can all understand that now. Um, okay, that brings us to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should express all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Uh, do we have, oh, I see some people. <laughs> Good evening, Chris Berger. Just want to thank everybody for the, the work they've put in with the right of way for the last couple, many months. Uh, and then a couple weeks ago, um, glad to see Tony and Randy here because uh, I was trying to think of a way to document some things that were said. So I made a proclamation from the office of the residents, Lawrence, Kansas, a proclamation, whereas the office of the city attorney it gives legal opinions, advice, and direction to the city commission. And whereas the city commission listens to and relies upon the office of the city attorney. And whereas the office of the city attorney represented on March 22nd, 2022, that the right of way provisions in the city code do not authorize the city to lean or otherwise encumber a person's real estate that there is no provision for that and that it can't be done. And whereas the office of the city attorney represented on March 22nd, 2022, that the only persons 
required to get a bond regarding the right-of-way would be those who are placing permanent structures within the right-of-way, which would involve piping or those who have agreements under Chapter 9, which does not include land or homeowners. Now, therefore, I, just another resident, does hereby proclaim that we rely on the representations of the Office of the City Attorney. And we call upon the government officials, the educators, the volunteers, and residents of Lawrence, Kansas, to reach out to those within your communities and work to create a better, brighter, and more hopeful future for all. And I'd like to offer this to the city clerk for the record. Thank you, Counselor. I hope you tune in later. There's more right away to be discussed much, much later. <laughs> uh, is there, oh, there you are. Yeah, good evening, Madam Mayor, Vice Mayor and Commissioners. Ted Boyle, North Orange Improvement Association. Good to be up here. Good to see live people instead of a screen. So, uh, but what I want to tell you is uh, a couple of things. One, people on uh, 300 block of Pleasant and 800 block of Walnut are still waiting for that street light. And uh, we're going to have to talk about it in length sometime. The other deal I want to talk about is uh, fire and medical being able to come to North Lawrence when events are happening uh, like the past weekend. And I want to thank the commissioners for uh, taking my phone calls and relaying the message to fire and medical. Uh, Mr. Tom Fagan of the fire department contacted me um, Sunday and uh, assured me we had probably a, a good 45 minutes or an hour discussion on the phone uh, about this uh, emergency uh, being able to get to North Lawrence. And, you know, uh, to the bicycle race that we had last year, that was one of the ones that impeded the traffic uh, coming to North Lawrence and restricted first responders. And, uh, you know, that, that was a complete failure. And that was where the city let members of that bicycle group navigate the traffic here on 6th Street, and it was a bottleneck. And I was personally caught up in that traffic for over 30 minutes coming from 9th and Kentucky to 6th and Kentucky, and that took 30 minutes. And then from 6th and Kentucky to get to my house at 310 Elm Street, another 15 minutes. And so this, this was not acceptable. And so the phone call that I made to the commission here about regarding this was in lack of communication between the first responders and the neighborhood association. We had, we had no idea of what type of plan there was in uh, effect, guarantee us uh, first responders because as you know, the first responders are supposed to be parked at the depot, but uh, Mr. Fagan told me, he said, well, uh, everything where they're undermanned and don't have the equipment or the personnel to have a first responder parked at the depot. Well, that kind of shortchanged us, you know, that kind of cheats us out of uh, what we deserve. We pay our taxes just like everybody else in the city. 
And so we need to come up with some type of resolution, either buy another That's piece fine. of equipment or uh, man a first responder at the depot. So anyway, this discussion will continue. And the preempt at third and locust, second locust is not operable. It's not working since the city went to satellite and took the strobes off the fire engine. So you all need to look at that too. Dropping the ball. Thank you, Ted. Um, is there any other public comment in the room? Hi, I'm Kim Richter and I'm a member of Livewell Douglas County and I also live in McCompton uh, and I'm a professor of population health at KU Med Center. Um, I run the hospital tobacco treatment program there at the hospital and uh, we treat a lot of people over 2000 a year for tobacco dependence. Um, I'm also speaking as a mother of two uh, kids who started smoking uh, and then in their late teens and they quit smoking and then they started vaping and they managed to quit, but it was very hard for them to do. And I'm here to really thank you um, all for, you know, supporting uh, changing the local ordinance um, to raise it to the age of 21 and also include uh, for, for uh, cigarette use uh, for sales of cigarettes and also for raising the age of legal sale of vaping products to 21. I think that'll help a lot. Um, with keeping uh, these products out of the hands of kids. Um, and also, especially, I'm really excited about um, you considering the tobacco retail licensing program. Most smokers start smoking regularly um, between the ages of 13 and 16. And two major reasons for that are that retailers illegally sell products to minors or sell them to young people who then uh, sell or give them to minors. And so it's great to raise the age, but we also really have to police what's going on because even our legal age of 18 wasn't keeping tobacco out of the hands of minors. We need to do a better job of enforcing that law. Um, I'm also really um, thrilled that you're interested in considering at a later date um, the li limiting the retailer dens density and uh, the proximity to youth venues. I know that that's something that you decided to put off and I think that makes sense. But I'm really excited about that um, particular change because um, it's really a critical step toward reducing health disparities and making the environment healthy for all kids. We know that tobacco outlets are um, more densely concentrated among communities of color and low-income communities. It's also true of alcohol outlets. And now in Kansas, they're allowed to sell cigarettes um, and vapes. Um, I'm afraid uh, that the whole situation has gotten worse in terms of density and proximity. And um, so I really look forward to working with you on that once we've gotten kinks worked out in uh, with the with the ordinance changes that you're considering. So really it's just a thank you. And um, I really am very heartened at these changes and um, look forward to seeing what happens in June. I guess that's when you'll be considering the, the ordinance language. Thanks, Kim. Thank you. Uh, any other public comment in the room? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, I just wanted to make a um, comment about the recent uh, changes, I guess, the our police chief made about the no-knock warrants and banning the chokeholds. Um, I 
I very much appreciate that. I, I think it's, I think it's good, but I just, I don't think I, it's, it looks better than it actually is because I think the chief said it's not that big of a deal because um, it, they weren't, neither were, were being used, I guess. So is it really that much of a reform to formalize something you weren't using anyway? Like, I mean, what, like, if you look at the problem police officers we we have had in the past decade, would either of those changes affect what they did? You know, like, like, like the skateboarder had his arm broke. Would would either of those affected that case? You know, like the bigger, like, I, I think y'all need to keep your eyes on the prize. I think what actual reform is, is accountability. I, I think you need to think more about the body cams and the police review board. I mean, that that's what we really need. And I just wonder, um, could the police chief, could, could they be making these changes like in anticipation of the reform? Like they, they, by doing this, they can be like, oh, look, we're progressive, you know, we don't, we can reform ourselves maybe. Like, I don't think y'all should let up on this. I, I, I'd stay on, stay on this situation. Like don't, don't just accept that reforms happening because, because they are, but that what actually is happening is they're just formalizing stuff they weren't using. So that that's not good enough reform for me. I, I think we can do better. Not, not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's a right, it's a right step in the, a right step in the, in the right direction, but we we need to do more and um also i found it also interesting that how long has that this new police chief been in in charge you know what how quickly he was able to get rid of those two things when other people have been here since the George Floyd thing asking y'all to do it and and city staff didn't but then we i mean by the amount of time this new chief eliminated those two things that shows to me that you all like the city kind of dropped the ball because it should have happened sooner because the new chief was able to do it in just a few months and you had over a year to do it thank you thanks chris my name is michael i'm glad to see you all here Craig, I appreciate you meeting with me and handling the Cora issue as far as the $90 charges. I'm glad to be able to say that to you in person. I want to echo what Chris just said, because the reality of the two changes that the chief did make, and he even said this himself, was that he couldn't find an officer that had executed a no-knock warrant and that the use of chokeholds and carotid holds weren't really prevalent in this area. It's not the chokehold and the carotid hold that we have a problem with. It's the aggression. And when you take a nonviolent situation and you escalate it into violence, and we've seen that happen a number of times. Now, what Chris said about the changes and how they can happen now, it really got me thinking about what I've been thinking about for the last few days since I got some documents from the city and from Seapost. All the officers that created these issues with us when we came out, because we came out filming saying, get rid of Brad Williams. And he was the one that broke Dr. Tran's arm. We came out demanding accountability for one officer. 
We had one name on our tongue and officers in this town lost their minds because we had cameras and they got aggressive. I've shown the videos, but those officers are all gone. It, it's funny how they've all, my, somehow it's time to retire all of a sudden. I think the writing was on the wall and it's unfortunately that more people can't see it. The longer we constrain the CPRB by force and police involvement, the CPRB is the citizens review board. It's not the police review board. The police had their review board. And from what I understand is that's the final say in everything. And that's what I've gotten here because the incidents that I brought to the commission and two of you up there responded to me saying that you had asked for further review of those situations. And then I've gotten emails from the city now that show the review was an email to Troy Squire and Troy Squire saying it was admirable behavior and he was proud of him. And, and it looks to me like that was the only re additional review that happened. I've inquired if somebody could help me understand what additional review happened. But if we have a review process where the, the OPA supervisor or whoever's in charge of the police department at the time says this is fine and that's it, even though other people see an issue, that is an issue of its own. There needs to be a secondary review for when there's something that comes up that creates a question. Like I think a couple of you or at least three or four of you had in your minds when you saw that video. I'm just asking that we, again, hold the police accountable. It's about accountability. It's not gestures. It's accountability. And the only way we get there is by having it real on the street and not just talk. Thank you. Thank you. Any more public comment in the room? Doesn't look like it. Is there any public comment on the Zoom? Anyone at home interested in speaking? No, Mayor. All right, very good. And then I think we can move on therefore to oops, uh, our work session. Let me just check on my uh, fellow commissioners. Is everybody comfortable to go ahead and do this item and then take a break? Everybody's comfortable? Okay. Uh, that brings us to our work session. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. As a general practice, the commission will not make decisions on items presented during this time. Rather, they will refer the items to staff for follow-up if necessary. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Um, and we will receive the um, strategic plan update from the Connected City Outcome Team. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I am Melinda Harger, Interim Director of Municipal Services and Operations and the champion for the Connected City Outcome within the City Strategic Plan. I'll be presenting tonight along with Angela Buzzard. Um, she is our General Manager of MSO Administration. So I'll start out by sharing a video on the Connected City Outcome. I'm going to test the sound to start with here, just to make sure I'm not having any technical difficulties. That come through okay? Everyone started to hear the, the music? Okay, great. Man, it's not working, Melinda. You can't hear it. Can't hear you, Melinda. <laughs> All right. 
I'm going to try one other trick here. And I may have to ask Porter to remind me what setting it was. See, share sound. I'm going to try this again. Share sound, correct. All right. Hi, I'm Melinda Harger, Interim Director of Municipal Services and Operations and the champion for the Connected City Outcome. This outcome focuses on having well-maintained, functional, and efficient infrastructure, facilities, and other assets in our city. We want to ensure we are providing accessible and sustainable methods for safely moving people and information throughout the community and the region. Investment in this area reflects our commitment to the well-being of all people in our community. When we talk about city assets, we are referring to anything the city owns and operates. For Lawrence, that adds up to more than $2.5 billion of assets, including buildings like City Hall and our water treatment plants, vehicles including solid waste trucks, buses and police cars, recreation areas like the Lawrence Loop and our local parks, underground infrastructure like water distribution and stormwater collection, and other city facilities including our roads, cemeteries and parking garages in downtown Lawrence. The city has invested in an asset management program to ensure we are maintaining our assets so that they provide value to our community well into the future. Asset management is a decision-making process in which we evaluate the condition of the assets, the cost of service for its operation, regulatory requirements, and what its capacity needs are now into the future. With this knowledge on each asset, we can understand what the long-term cost of its ownership will be so we can better plan for necessary maintenance and eventual replacement. Just like with car ownership, if you fully understand the condition of a car when it is purchased, you can better plan for minor maintenance along the way to help extend its life and prolong expensive repairs. You would rather replace the oil than the engine, right? But if you need to replace the engine, it is best to know about it ahead of time rather than in a crisis situation. That same concept applies to our city assets. We want to know what condition they are in, when they will wear out based on how we want them to perform, how we manage the associated risk, how much it will cost to repair or replace, and how we will pay for it. Through our work in Connected City, we have identified the service level our residents expect in a variety of areas, including water, wastewater, transit, and more. Our asset management program helps us achieve the desired level of services by identifying needed resources so we can more precisely plan for budget recommendations. Here are a few examples of how we are incorporating asset management into our operations. One of our strategic plan progress indicators is the percent of sidewalks in compliance with ADA accessibility standards. We have now inventoried all sidewalks in Lawrence with the use of LiDAR mapping technology. From this sidewalk inventory, we are working on developing timelines and cost estimates to make progress on this goal. Another of our progress indicators is the cost per lane mile of city streets. With asset management, we are analyzing our streets to determine the right balance of funding that is needed to get to and maintain the quality of streets that our residents want. And my last example is related to some of our most expensive assets, our water and wastewater treatment systems. Asset management helps us determine how to optimally run the plants to not only maintain compliance with regulations, but also better plan future plant upgrades. We are currently preparing for a regulatory required $55 million plant upgrade to the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant that will help us protect the water quality of the Kansas River. As you can see, our work in Connected City is a continuous cycle to get the best use out of city assets. 
asset management is the key driver to make this happen, and we look forward to expanding its use to accomplish additional strategic plan goals. I'd like to thank the city's communication team for putting together the video. It provided an overview of what's included in Connected City and some of the progress indicators. So we'll get into a few of these in more detail during the presentation. Um, so I'm going to now screen share again. Um, I would like to uh, request that questions be held until the end since we will provide additional detail and clarification as we get into later slides. So um, we may end up answering your questions. It's a bad time to make a joke about connect, connected cities. <laughs> oh, see, look, look at that. You make a joke and it comes. Okay, yeah, good job. Sorry, about that. Sorry, I had too, <laughs> had too many screens um, and I accidentally closed the presentation and I thought I had it all set up. So I wanted to make sure I was sharing appropriately. So again, this is uh, Melinda Harger, Interim Director of MSO. And I will get started here. Okay, so I'm gonna move our pictures out of the way though. I can see here. All right. <laughs> Still having some technical difficulties here. There we go. Uh, all right, so to recap, the connected city outcome will move us toward having, will maintain functional and efficient infrastructure, facilities, and other assets. Investment in these assets and connectivity will continue, will contribute to the well-being of all people. So we have uh, 14 progress indicators for connected city with some of these broken down into multiple data points that we're reporting on that you can see on our uh, scorecard online. Uh, during this presentation, I'll provide an update on a few of these progress indicators and strategies. I will then share some other activities related to multimodal connectivity and a testimonial video from an active member in our community. Um, Angela will be joining me in discussing some specific activities related to asset management. I'll finish tonight's presentation with some policy discussion related to CC12 and CC14, which are under the environmental sustainability commitment. So starting off with 
uh, CC3, which is months per year the city is in compliance with minimum water and wastewater discharge standards. This is uh, a metric that we recently updated. Um, in the previous year when we measured this, we were in compliance 11 out of 12 months, but I'm happy to report um, for 2021, it was 12 out of 12. So this progress indicator is a significant aspect of the city continuing to meet established State Drinking Water Act and Clean Water Act regulatory obligations and permits. We currently have a CIP project to upgrade the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant. This project is necessary to meet new permit requirements. Without these nutrient removal, nutrient reduction upgrades, uh, the city will be out of compliance with the new permit limits, which go into effect mid-2024. The plant upgrades as well as other priority stormwater and wastewater projects are detailed in the city's integrated wastewater utilities plan or our integrated plan. Uh, the integrated planning is a process that municipalities can use to achieve clean water and human health goals while addressing aging infrastructure, changing population and rainfall patterns, and competing priorities for funding. The integrated plan documents, uh, the integrated plan documents a mutual understanding between the city and KDHE regarding the implementation schedule for infrastructure improvements and enhancements and inspect, uh, expansion. The integrated plan currently incorporates the discharge permit of the city's two wastewater treatment plants, the MS4, which is our municipal separate stormwater system permit, and is planned to be included in um, future farmland permitting and remediation efforts. So in the last couple of weeks, we we added data on the scorecard for CC4, which is a percent of reliability goals met. This is one where we actually have four data points because we are reporting in four asset areas. So for example, we grouped our water wastewater goals for distribution, collection, treatment um, together and met 55% of those goals in 2021. Uh, the goals included things such as number of water main breaks, water service disruptions, sanitary sewer overflows, or wet weather incidents at our treatment facilities. Our current goals are based on AWWA survey results, but we're looking to gather some detailed data from other uh, utilities in the KC area. We have set a target of meeting 80% of these reliability goals uh, for the three asset areas you see here. Um, as you can see, we're at 42% of goals met for the transportation network, transit and fleet, and 17% of our IT goals were met in 2021. The fourth asset area, uh, we're doing better and have set a target to meet 100% of the reliability goals. Our stormwater goals include things um, such as the percent of the system inspected, inlets inspected, streets swept, and uh, stormwater violations. So as we gather additional asset information and refine our plan, we intend to set stormwater goals related to capacity and quality improvement. For CC5, uh, LIDAR data indicates about 20% of our sidewalks and shared use paths meet ADA compliance. We have set a target of 25% for the end of 2022 based on our planned sidewalk projects. So more details and opportunities will be shared uh, later on tonight um, in the discussion on sidewalks um, and then at a future commission meeting uh, related to asset management. So now I'll turn it over to Angela to discuss more on the asset management strategy within Connected City. Thank you, Melinda. Um, <clears throat> as Melinda mentioned, my name is Angela Buzzard, and I'm the general manager for administration with the MSO. So I'm happy to be here tonight to share some updates with you on the Connected City outcome. 
Specifically, as Melinda mentioned, I'll be talking about the asset management strategy, which uh, you have in front of you there. So while this strategy, we, we decided to highlight this tonight because <clears throat> while this is just one of many strategies in our strategic plan, it's really a critical one that underpins our ability to perform the majority of the Connected City outcome strategies, as well as many other outcome areas in our strategic plan. The key performance indicators for this strategy <clears throat> are listed here, and Melissa discussed uh, some of them already. Uh, CC4 on asset reliability, um, we've also included here uh, the other two of our KPIs for this uh, strategy, which is cost per gallon of clean water and uh, treated wastewater, as well as cost per mile of um, our streets. So looking at per lane mile. So obviously uh, the three metrics that have been chosen for our KPIs uh, for asset management are our largest and most expensive assets across the city. And while most of those are within MSO, um, it's really important to certainly relay the message that asset management is very much a citywide initiative and it really looks at assets across all departments across all of the city. So if we move on to the next slide that we have here, we'll dig in a little bit more into that strategy and the activities that we wanted to give you some updates on. So the first activity that we have listed here, um, as you can see, is related to upgrading our city work order management system and really making sure those, that upgrade integrates with our current softwares that we have. So it's important to talk about the fact that to deploy a full asset management program across the city, we must first have a robust, comprehensive, and fully integrated work order system. There are a number of benefits to a quality work order system that you can see from this graphic on the left um, that really focus on improving our, our, the efficiency of our work orders, the accuracy, and the process time for those. So I would note that as you look at that, that largely um, the majority of the interface that city employees will have with the system and do with our current system is to track and respond to both external and internal customer customers reporting things like missed trash pickups, um, potholes that they're experiencing, uh, facility maintenance needs for internal staff. But what's really critical from the asset management component is that the system also is key to looking at the long-term asset performance and really using that to make informed budget decisions uh, for the whole organization. So our current worker system is called Lucidy. Uh, it's significantly outdated. It's actually no longer being supported by our vendor. So this was really low hanging fruit for us to tackle um, really as a first step towards implementing um, an asset management program. So to give you a, an update on where we're at on this, um, we're currently about two months into the process of mapping out our workflows and data in our departments to determine our readiness to transition to a new software, which I've listed there is CityWorks. CityWorks is an industry leading program that will provide um, so much more value to the organization than we currently have with our current system being in Lucidy. Once we've completed the readiness assessment, which we're about halfway through, we'll begin the process of filling in the data gaps that we've identified through that readiness assessment, as well as making the transition from Lucidy to CityWorks. Um, most importantly, after that transition is done and concurrently is the integrations with our other um, softwares for CityWorks, such as Munis coming online, GIS, and, and several others. So we're, we're well underway uh, for this first activity and are um, looking forward to the progress that we'll see from that. So if we move on then to the next one um, is developing an asset management policy and strategic asset management plan. 
So with this activity, um, I'm going to back up a little bit um, to uh, talk about really asset management in general, um, to have some of that foundation as we move forward for this full, for this activity update in the next one. As Melinda's video mentioned, um, generally talking about defining what asset management is, uh, it's kind of a nebulous term to some individuals, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So as we talk about it in general, it's really a data-driven approach to look at our assets, um, which as Melinda said, it's, it's anything that the city owns, to analyze how it performs um, and really what investment the city wants to make to have it perform at a defined level of service that we have established through our strategic plan. So um, the, um, the graph I have here really highlights the main areas as you look at asset management um, that again we touched on in the video the assets level of service understanding criticality as you go forward um, clockwise life cycle of those assets which we'll touch on here in a minute and then obviously very importantly how are we going to fund uh, those assets so i really like to boil it down to the um, kind of a more simplistic definition of what do we own where is it what condition is it in when is it going to wear out and and how are we going to replace it and be prepared for that financial investment for the replacement at that time. But obviously that is boiling it down. It's a much more complicated process with a lot of variable variables such as criticality um, and understanding kind of how that asset performs over its life cycle that we need to look at. So that's kind of a snapshot on how we're looking at asset management and, and the benefits it has to the organization. So if you click forward one there, Melinda, we'll go to the next one, which really layers how asset management fits in with what we're doing. So if we layer the definition of asset management over our strategic plan, you can see that the plan really guides the, our asset management policy in establishing the service expectations we have for our community through the outcomes um, that we've obviously put together. One of those being the connected city group that we're with. In addition to that, our commitment areas we've identified um, to the left there really give us the guidance and parameters um, to determine how to achieve to achieve those outcomes that we've set. So as this graphic lays out, that asset management really lies in the middle here, in um, middle serving kind of as the how-to to achieving the plan um, that we've identified with uh, the financial needs and strategies of that performance. And the key to asset management is doing at the lowest life cycle cost. So funding those outcomes um, can be done in a number of different ways. And really the goal of asset management is to figure out how to fund those outcomes at the goals that we want to achieve there um, at the lowest life cycle cost. It's really important. So to give you the final update on this activity, um, we've been in the process over the last few months to secure a consultant to walk us through the developing of our asset management policy and strategic asset management plan. We'll actually be bringing that agreement uh, before you, before the commission in the next few weeks, uh, if executed and, and agreed upon. Um, with that, we're excited to get this process started, which will involve um, staff from across the city to um, get us moving again, another step forward in, in really having a fully implementable asset management plan. The next slide we have here is the last activity I was going to provide an update on. This one's a little more technical, uh, so I'm going to try my best to kind of walk us through it. But it's looking at developing life cycle um, asset life cycle models, which we're really estimating the not only the life cycle, but then those identified work plans that go along with it and the costs associated with that as well. So um, I have two asset life cycle curves that I wanted to share with you, and I, I tried to find ones that 
um, could relay these concepts um, as best as possible. So this first one is really looking at a mechanical asset. So let's say that we have, this is a $40,000 water pump that we have at our PAW water treatment plant. So as you can see, uh, when the pump is installed here to the left side of the graph, the green area really shows um, that a limited amount of maintenance is needed to keep this pump operational and providing the support that we need. But as that pump ages, uh, just like our car and other mechanical assets, the need for the maintenance grows and the efficiency of that pump um, lessens over time, which is represented um, as the curve move forward in the yellow and orange areas. So really as staff, um, it's really trying to predict where that failure line is that's indicated there as well. And typically replacing or rehabbing, say this pump, for example, before the failure occurs is really often the most cost-effective strategy for the organization. So um, if nobody has a crystal ball particularly, but there's a lot of metrics and data that we can gather on that asset and the operations of it to try to hone in and pinpoint um, that potential failure as best as we can. There are assets depending on their criticality to the system and their cost that are best to run to failure actually. And so um, it's really figuring out what's the most cost-effective approach. Asset management is the framework that asks the organization to make those proactive determinations and develop maintenance programs that speak to those life cycle costs of, of say, this um, pump in this example that drives the, the lowest cost of ownership for that. So that's really the piece where asset management comes in and really predicting where that's at and putting our maintenance plan together to meet uh, where those needs are best at the low life cycle cost. The next one I have here is um, probably a little, little easier to digest in that um, we're looking at our street assets. And this one um, is pretty, pretty easy to see here. It's two different models um, in regarding to looking at the top graph is really kind of somewhat of a more traditional approach. Um, a lot of um, local governments use, which is more reactive in nature. Looking at, um, looking at, you know, we're starting with that road in excellent condition we let it deteriorate to a poor condition. We do a significant cost rehab, bring it back up to excellent, and then it deteriorates again over, um, I think, yeah. So a 30-year life cycle is what this is looking at. If you look at the bottom graph there, it's one where it's a more proactive approach using more asset management principles in place, where we're taking it from an excellent condition only down to fair, and then doing a smaller um, treatment to that at a smaller cost. So in this example provided um, over the life cycle, 30 years of the street, um, it's a $40,000 investment if we're doing a more asset management based approach versus an $80,000 investment. And I think the key here, which you'll see in my next example is the condition of the street doesn't um, deteriorate quite as much in the uh, more proactive approach as well. So again, not speaking to level of service. So this is the last uh, slide that I have um, for you. And really what I wanted to do here is show you how um, life cycle costing this last activity is being applied to the roads that you and I travel on uh, regularly as a part of the Lawrence community. So I do have a caveat on this that we have just started these efforts. And so this is very preliminary draft data, um, but I thought it was important to be able to put this in front of you so you can see you know, what we're trying to achieve and looking at asset management um, across the organization uh, for illustration, you know, purposes and discussion. So um, I do not take credit for this. Uh, our asset management team, including Darren Haig, um, our asset and innovation manager, as well as um, 
with support from uh, Dave Cronin, our city engineer, and Steve Lashley, senior project engineer, are looking at these um, lifecycle cost models for our roads. And this is um, some data that we pulled together to share. So as you can see here, um, what we're trying to depict is that the red lines are indicating kind of um, kind of the build and replace uh, process of, of managing assets without asset management principles in place. And the green lines are indicating those with a more varied rehab and more preventative maintenance uh, program in place. So from initial construction, which I know you can't see my mouse here at the first year, um, going to about, you know, in the red scenario, rehabbing that completely every 20 years or so uh, versus the green lines, which are showing smaller areas, thanks Melinda, of uh, varied rehab and preventative maintenance over the life cycle of, of this lane mile of street. So the comparison of that is right before that last rehab there is at about the 54 year mark is what, what we're using. If you compare the total cost of these over the life cycle, um, if we are, we'll start with red, not doing just build to re complete replacement, we're a little over 3.1 million versus um, some asset management principles and more proactive approaches about over 2.6 million. So for this example, over this one you know lane mile of, um, of infrastructure, we're looking at saving around 16%. Um, if you multiply that out over the hundreds of lane miles we have and multiple projects, as well as over multiple years, I'm hoping that this conveys the opportunity that we have a lot of cost savings that we can um, have in place in, in managing our assets um, under kind of a proactive approach uh, going forward. So with that, I will turn it back over to Melinda, and I appreciate your time and in, in me sharing about asset management. Thank you, Angela. I'm Melinda Harger, Interim Director, Municipal Services and Operations. So I'm going to switch gears now and uh, get into um, a more transportation um, experience uh, focus area. So we're going to talk a little bit about CC2, which is the percent of residents satisfied or very satisfied with their transportation experiences. We don't have that uh, baseline data yet for this metric. Um, this data will be gathered from our upcoming citizen survey results. But um, I believe, and I believe the citizen survey will be out um, by next month, but we're already working on uh, the strategies and activities for CC2, which include investment in multimodal infrastructure and services and um, improving multimodal connectivity with an emphasis on pedestrian and bicycle demand and transportation for disadvantaged populations. So I'm going to go through some of the activities that you'll see we've identified that tie into those strategies. So in 2022 and 2023, staff will update the multimodal long-range uh, transportation plan from Transportation 2040 to Transportation 2050. And tonight is actually the kickoff meeting for the T2050 Steering Committee. Another activity, the city implementing the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program is an example of a program working to improve mobility, safety, and connectivity of multimodal trips. Uh, 2021 was the first full year of implementation of the reduced speed limit to 25 miles per hour on all local streets and the public outreach and education campaign to encourage safer driving behaviors. Here we have an activity um, 
that's showing the city is constructing priority gaps in the city pedestrian and bikeway networks. Uh, the city in partnership with the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization or MPO is advancing additional work in developing future plans like the Lawrence Pedestrian Plan to engage the community and lay out recommended strategies to advance walkability. The plan includes recommendations around building and maintaining the pedestrian network, such as identifying sidewalk gap projects to support community access to transit, healthy food destinations, and parks. It also addresses many other strategies to support safe and comfortable pedestrian crossings, uh, considering the pedestrian experience in the land development code update and improving the safety and comfort through policy, education, and enforcement. The entire plan can be viewed online and public comment was open through March 30th. So we'll be finding out um, more about uh, the comments that were received here in the near future. So the commission will be asked to review and adopt the plan in the coming months after completion um, and uh, analysis of that public review period. There will be additional work to do to make it easier to get around on foot or with mobility devices. Another activity related to these strategies uh, to invest in multimodal infrastructure and improve connectivity is the sidewalk improvement program. So we will be providing um, an overview of that program and discussing that further later on tonight. As mentioned at a recent commission meeting, we have identified the need to develop multimodal wayfinding standards. Um, you will notice that is um, going to be coming to you later on as, as a CIP project. We've already started our CIP process and um, have identified that as a project. Um, also updating the ADA transition plan for public right-of-way as an activity staff expecting to complete in 2023. Although we don't yet have the updated transition plan, the city is already increasing the investment in ADA improvements in the right-of-way with dedicated ADA ramp funding and prioritizing ADA improvements in our CIP process. So um, we have I'm going to stop my screen share here and try this again. I'll try it without as many delays maybe as the last time here. Should still have sound, so that's good. So here we have a testimonial I'd like to share with you. Hi, my name is Dot Neri, and I'm speaking both as chair of the Healthy Environment, Healthy Built Environment Work Group of Live Well Lawrence, and also as an individual. First, I'd like to say um, I appreciate that the plan defines walking um, to include mobility devices because I think this shows that it represents everybody in the community. Um, and I, it really, the plan builds on what was accomplished in the last five-year plan. Uh, progress earmarking funds for bike and uh, pedestrian plans, um, improvement of ADA ramps, um, continuation in developing the Lawrence Loop, which is a wonderful community asset. But I, I think it continues the work to create an environment, not just where people can walk, but the, where they want to walk. And I think that's what we need to do to continue to be a progressive community. I really appreciate that um, there's the ongoing plan to address sidewalk gaps and barriers. That is huge. Um, for myself as a wheelchair user, um, barriers and sidewalk is, is just a no-go. I just can't get places.
making it so people want to walk. As a person with a disability who's aging, I'm looking at 10 years down the line, what is it going to be like for me to get around in this community? Um, can I take public transportation? Can I wheel places where I want to go? And for an increasing senior, uh, a population of older adults, this is really, really important. And it's one of the reasons that I want to live in Lawrence. And this plan will make it even more so. From the Healthy Built Environment Work Group, we hear from people in the community about demands for why can't I ride a bike safely? Um, why can't I walk in my neighborhood? Why do I have to worry about falling? So this plan, um, in concert with the other plans uh, to, to increase uh, walkability in the community, is really, really important. I, um, I rode a bike as a, ch as a youth everywhere. That was my main mode of transportation. I can't ride a bike now, I'm using a wheelchair, but it's really important to me that young people, older people, that everybody can bike around the community if that's what they want to do. And we need to work toward that goal so everybody can do that. I want, um, um, Melinda Harger, Interim Director of um, Municipal Services and Operations. I want to thank Todd for um, taking the time um, to, to share those words with us um, that we could share it with all of you. Let's see. Try this again. All right, so as we've, we've mentioned, and we're going to have a policy discussion on the sidewalk improvement program tonight, and we'll be discussing asset management policy next month. Um, but there are a couple areas of policy we'd like to get into tonight. So um, tonight we'd like to highlight some of the sustainable policy that we'll be bringing back to you in the future um, on CC12. Uh, percent of city used energy that is renewable. The city's partnered with Evergy to source 98% of the city's uh, electricity from renewable sources. Some of the other energy sectors will be more challenging. And so we ask uh, for direction from the commission on how you would like to see the renewable energy goals balanced with operational constraints and affordability. For example, uh, we're currently seeing higher costs for electricity compared to natural gas. Uh, but we understand the emerging trend of electrification will likely close that gap over the next 10 to 15 years. We will be releasing an RFP in the coming weeks to develop a comprehensive evaluation to transition the city's vehicle and equipment fleet to 100% renewable energy by 2035. Considerations include infrastructure needs and a risk assessment such as um, looking at redundancy to account for charging times, how to handle extreme temperatures that reduce battery capacity, things like that. An example of one challenge is that not all of our specialty vehicles are currently offered in an all-electric option um, and some electric vehicles are double the cost to purchase. So an example of that, um, an EV trash truck is currently running over $600,000 compared to around $300,000 for a trash truck that uses fuel. So those are the, some of the things that we're considering um, and that will get looked at through this evaluation. Um, we understand, um, or you know, as I mentioned, the, the higher operating costs right now of using electricity over, over natural gas, but the capital cost also has to be considered. So converting our facilities from natural gas to electric will be a substantial cost. Um, and with our current project at the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant, we've learned that some 
treatment process equipment, for example, cannot be powered with electricity at this time. The technology is just not quite there. So transitioning to electric fleet vehicles and renewable power to our treatment plants will impact utility rates and, and we need to look at what is um, a reasonable schedule for some of those things to happen um, as, as we see things um, become available in the market. We'll be updating CIPs and things like that to account for it. So even with these challenges, um, the proposed 2023-27 CIP will include the sustainability projects related to these 100% renewable goals. Another um, item here, CC14, which is the number of public infrastructure projects that account for climate adaptation. This is an item on our scorecard where we don't have data right now. Um, this is, as we discussed this item, we said, um, we, we felt it was somewhat subjective to, to say whether a project is accounting for climate adaptation or not. So uh, we suggest using an industry standard green rating system to standardize the measurements. So a, a few of these um, are available that we think would be really relevant. Envision is primarily focused on utility and transportation infrastructure. This is something that we, we have someone on staff that's credentialed and we have an additional uh, four or five um, project managers that will be earning this credential in the coming months. Um, LEAD, you may be more familiar with, um, is more focused on buildings, but it's definitely in our toolbox to um, utilize those checklists and that rating system as well on facility projects. Uh, these rating systems point to sustainable procurement policies and directives. Um, so staff would like to understand the commission's goals for different levels of attainment for these. For example, um, should the goal be a certified level or a silver level for certain types of projects? Uh, it basically comes down to the policy decision of how to specifically spend the total sustainability dollars. Um, what criteria should we use and what will provide the best return on investment across all of our projects. So we request guidance so staff can appropriately scope the design of each project. Currently, some sustainability decisions are being brought to the commission in the middle of a design phase with budget impacts for features not originally anticipated uh, during the initial planning and budgeting process. And this is not an uh, efficient and effective process. So to fix that, Staff will be bringing policy discussions to the commission in the future with recommendations and related impacts. We know the importance of having data to assist in the policy decisions. So we'll be providing all of that to you at, at future meetings. Uh, for the current CIP process, staff is evaluating all projects through the sustainability lens. So as you know, the CIP prioritization process includes scoring on environmental sustainability. Uh, we will need input from the commission on how to prioritize the funding for sustainability. Um, even before some of these policy uh, decisions are written out. So specifically staff will need your guidance on balancing, uh, for example, utility rate impacts with affordability. Uh, utility rates will be brought to you this summer with a snapshot of the impact these policy decisions will have on the rate payers. So I know that's a lot of information <laughs> kind of thrown at you tonight. So um, this is now this is now the end of the presentation, so I know you've probably been gathering a list of questions. Um, Angela and I are here to answer questions. We also have some members of staff. Um, so if, if you'd like to, to dive in, we'll stand for questions now. And I will stop screen sharing, but I can bring up another slide if, or bring up any slides if you have questions on them specifically. Any questions for Linda? 
Melinda, this is Commissioner Sellers. Um, you had mentioned that we had someone on staff who was certified in vision. I know that there are a couple of other um, green rating systems such as invest in green roads was the reason to go with envision was because we already had someone on staff that had that credential. Melinda Harger, interim director of MSO. That was one reason, um, but really we had made this decision a couple years ago that we wanted to move in the direction of envision. It was developed by a lot of nonprofit professional um, organizations and associations, uh, American Society of Civil Engineers, for example, and it's really focused on infrastructure and it's a, a low cost, um, many times low to no cost for um, public entities to be able to utilize that rating system. And there's a little cost involved if you want that, um, you know, third party um, verification of how your credentialed staff has scored a particular project. Um, but several of us have some of the other credentials as well. For instance, I'm um, I'm a lead AP and, and have been since 09. So we use some of those skills that the staff already have, some of the other credentials on other projects as well. Um, this one really got at a lot of those infrastructure projects where lead wasn't a, a great fit for that, but we've looked at some of the others like Green Globes and those as well. Uh, Commissioner Liljohn, um, I quick question for you, Melinda. Um, regarding the CC12, um, and uh, I just had a question regarding, I, we just recently came from a conference and we're made aware of uh, certain monies that might be released from the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy. Um, do you have anybody set aside to go ahead and take advantage of that? Um, or either yourself with MSO or in uh, the sustainability office? Melinda Harger, Interim Director of MSO. Um, Kathy is on here tonight, so she can speak to uh, the sustainability um, piece of it. Within MSO, we are um, looking at a variety of projects and what grant opportunities are available for those projects. So some of that, um, as we go through the CIP prioritization list and we find out which projects are, are um, approved for some funding right now and then which ones have the potential um, for outside sources, um, such as grants, we'll be prioritizing those and then looking at the specific scopes that we've identified for the various projects. So um, we we don't have, um, I guess, a dedicated person for that. Uh, the city has uh, partnered with um, a consultant who's helping with some of the grant writing and um, reviewing of what staff's putting together um, to kind of let us know, is this a good project? for this, you know, are, are we, um, is it worth the effort on this project? Is it going to look well compared to others? Um, and it helps to prioritize the time because there is a lot of time that goes into applying for the grant. So we want to make sure we're going after the ones that we feel um, will rank pretty high compared to our competition, I guess. And I see Kathy's turned on her, her screen, so she'd like to add to that. Good evening, Kathy Richardson, Interim Sustainability Director. I did turn on my video, but you answered the question uh, well. And um, just to add, there is a, a city team um, that is working with this consultant. So uh, multiple city staff that are coordinating on, on these opportunities. Thank you. Thank you, guys. 
Yeah, this is uh, Commissioner Larson. And then a couple of questions to back it up towards more of the beginning of your, your talk. Um, Melinda, when you talked about the uh, CityWorks software for work order management, as well as the development of the asset management policy, you had indicated, I think you had indicated there's going to we're going to hire a consultant to do that. Is that correct? Do you have a time frame for that? Yeah, so <clears throat> there's actually two different consultants involved in that. Um, Angela Buzzard, uh, General Manager uh, Administration with the MSO. Happy to take that question. Um, we have been working with a consultant by the name of Wolpert um, on the CityWorks integration. So they have been working with us to understand where we're at as far as readiness for both data and the process side, as well as system integrations to transition over to CityWorks. So that is a few months in, we're about two and a half months uh, now into that and looking to have implementation of um, some of the department's divisions that are more ready are gonna be able to implement quicker um, starting the beginning of 2023. Others that have a longer way to go on data collection and um, establishing more processes are gonna take longer. So that's on this, the uh, work order system side of it. So the second part of your question about the strategic asset management plan and the asset management policy, we have an agreement to bring forward to you. Um, we actually had planned on doing it um, even next week, but we're still working out fine tuning some of the components of the agreement. And so that will be coming before you in early May. Um, we haven't narrowed down whether it's the first or the second week, um, but that will be coming before you to really dig into the details of that in early May. So when do you think that you will um, go through the consultant process and, okay. and come up with a policy or plan yes. that could be implemented? Angela Buzzard, uh, General Manager of Administration with MSO. So the uh, once if if the consultant agreement is approved, it's a ten month time frame for us in implementing, um, doing the collaboration with across departments. Uh, it's laid out in a ten month time frame to develop uh, both the policy and working with staff on the the much more detailed part components of the strategic asset management plan. Okay, thank you. So in the meantime, what system are we using now for looking at our asset management policy or asset management? What are we using now? So Lucidity is our current work order system. And I think um, there's maybe, um, I don't know if Melinda wants to add to this too, but we use, we have a work order system in place, Lucidity. It just doesn't have all the functionality that we would need to really look at um, all the details of the assets and the way we want to and be collecting a, a wide variety of data. So I would say that, you know, we're not formally um, <clears throat> doing a cons consolidated effort on asset management, but each division is certainly looking proactively at their assets and how, how they're wanting to maintain those in using the work order system that we have Lucidity. But I would say it's a, it's just more of a, a decentralized process and there's probably efficiencies and a lots, lots of opportunities for us to do it better and at a larger scale through the process that we plan to bring forward to you guys in probably a couple weeks. Okay, great. One more question and I'll um, lose here. The, the LIDAR data that's been, that we've been collecting, are we done collecting that for this go around for all of our streets, sidewalks? <laughs> Melinda Harger, Interim Director of MSO. Uh, the LIDAR uh, data was collected for streets, sidewalks, 
Um, there's some other areas that they could extract the data. So that's something that we're looking at for this year to see if there's other assets we want extracted from what was collected over a year ago. Um, but we we do have that data it's under analysis right now. So that's where we came um, with the 20% um, of sidewalks that are currently in, in compliance. Um, and we are starting to utilize that data for streets and sidewalks, it, you know, as we are making the decisions about the CIP and maintenance needs. Okay, thank you. That's all I have right now. A uh, couple questions. Um, back on CC4, when you were talking about the reliability, can you talk, I think I understand the water and wastewater one, you talked some about that. What are we measuring on transportation network, transit and fleet? Is that if, are those vehicles breaking down, they're not working, or are we measuring like timeliness of transit, or what are we measuring there? Linda Harger, Interim Director of MSL. I will actually, I have a work hard breakdown here. So on um, the transportation network, some of the things we are looking at are percent of preventative work orders versus reactive um, work orders. Um, we are looking at uh, work orders completed within 30 days, percent of operational units um, compared to the fleet availability. So that's in the, the fleet area. Um, in under traffic signals, we're looking at the number of failures or unplanned outages, average time to resolve signal problems, percent of signals connected um, to our TFC with, with fiber or equivalent. And then um, under pavement, we're looking at the percent pavement in satisfactory or better condition. On the transit side, we're looking at on-time performance and percentage of revenue vehicles meeting or exceeding the useful life benchmark. And then we're also looking at uh, fire med emergency travel times and response time of LPD to high priority calls. So that's the, the full list of everything. Well, that is a full list. <laughs> that's a full list. I'm afraid to ask what's in the information technology list, though, but I'm interested now. <laughs> it, it, it's a little bit shorter list. <laughs> um, but all of these, I would like to mention that they were not measured in 2020. So these reliable reliability measures were developed in 2021. Um, and that's where you'll see the 17% um, figure. And, um, and we have some folks uh, such as Brian uh, Thomas from IT that, that are on if you have detailed questions about these. But some of the things uh, that we have on the list are percent of technology projects properly uh, scoped and resourced, percent of IT help desk requests resolved within certain um, hours or days, uh, tier one systems uptime, percent of production equipment replaced in alignment with the current uh, schedule, number of security incidents, and number of recognized security safeguards fully implemented. But if there are detailed questions about that, I would definitely refer to IT. <laughs> well, Brian, I see you're on there. Can you talk a little bit about that 17% and what, what you're thinking about going forward on those? Yes, I was hoping not for that question tonight. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you no, never expect it. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that, Commissioner. My name's uh, Brian Thomas, Assistant Technology Director at the City of Lawrence. Uh, that data, again, from 2021 is really, really focused on some of the uptime, reliability, and replacement of equipment. A lot of that equipment, uh, and some good news, there is a good story out of this, 
We've actually, uh, in the middle of a, a citywide inventory of our technology, we've done, done a lot of that critical infrastructure equipment that we've inventoried, and we'll be um, actually replacing that through a CIP that was approved last year. So the, the good news is we'll see that number uh, move up on the, I guess you want to call it the Richter scale, move it up on the scale this year. Uh, but again, it's just a, 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 lot, a lot of that was due to um, kind of just uh, equipment that was left for disrepair and, and not funded properly over the, uh, I would say over the last several years, if that answers your question. That helps helpful though. The only one I know is the responsiveness of the IT help desk and they always respond right away. And so you're doing well there. Um, great, thank you for, for that. The other question I had, and I assume, and this is on the asset life cycle, um, and we're talking about those graphs, you know, obviously if you're doing preventive maintenance along the way, um, you know, obviously you can you can save money over time. I appreciate that, like that. Um, I assume part of what we're do, studying now is, unfortunately we're not starting with all of our assets at 100% so that we can implement this. Um, so I guess as I think this through, you know, we probably gonna have to spend more money to get things to that point, while at the same time implementing this preventative stuff before we start seeing the savings? Is that a realistic uh, thought process as I think about trying to get streets up to a point where we can maintain them as an example or or whatever, a uh, pump or whatever, before we can do this preventative stuff? It seems like we might have more surge in expenses at the beginning before we start to see the savings on the back end. Is that a accurate thought process? <clears throat> um, Angela Buzzard, uh, General Manager of Administration with the MSO. Um, yes, Commissioner, I would say that, you know, that, that thought process would align with what we're going to see. Um, it's really our first step is making sure that we have the condition of all of our assets available as a part of um, excuse me, as a part of our system to be able to understand where everything's at. So part of that are projects, um, we have a better understanding on streets and certainly on water and wastewater, but projects like the asset ID project for our stormwater assets to understand what is what is our liability and risk there as far as with our stormwater assets. So making sure that we have a good understanding of what our condition is and then really bringing it before um, before this body to understand with a finite amount of resources, what level of service do we want to have those assets performing at and how do we, you know, how do we balance where we put those dollars at? But the key to an asset management plan is having that data to make that decision because, I mean, we're making decisions on where to put those dollars at in, in as every local government is, but having the data behind us to make a really informed decision on how do we place those dollars to stretch the life of those assets as long as we can is that key component that we're trying to get to. So, and when we, just so you know too, um, so I'm, you know, part of this effort, but we have folks that um, can answer and have a lot more detail, particularly um, with our asset and innovation manager when we bring forward the proposal to really put forward our asset management plan and get that policy going, uh, we'll be providing additional details then as well. Melinda Harger, interim director of MSO. I'd also like to add, it's not that we're going um, from one extreme to the other in all areas and all assets, um, especially, you know, when I think of water, wastewater treatment, um, our facilities there through our preventative maintenance um, schedules and the work that has been performed over the decades, some of 
um, the life cycles or the, the lifespan we've seen on some of our assets, they're well beyond what was initially set as useful life. Um, so we have been doing some of that, you know, preventative maintenance on those assets. And I, I think of the CIPP, the lining, you know, of the, of the sanitary sewer that's been going on for quite some time. Um, of course, mill and overlay um, is a maintenance um, method as well. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that, that it's, it's not that we're going from driving everything to failure to now using asset management. So we have been um, utilizing some preventative maintenance, but this will allow us to make some more of the data-driven decisions, the more data that we have gathered. Thank you. Any other questions? I had one, I had one more. Nobody has. Um, Melinda, you talked about using electric versus gas, um, and I know we've converted 98% from the electric part of it. Can you tell me, do we do we know what our percentage of gas that uh, that our facility uses versus electric? Melinda Harger, interim director of MSO. So when we look at the metric, our scorecard right now is saying we have about 1% uh, renewable when it comes to um, renewable natural gas, because we're also looking at biogas as part of that. And we do uh, reuse um, some of the biogas that's created at our treatment plants. But what we're really seeing is there's not a lot of renewable options for natural gas. So really what we'd be looking at is conversion. Um, and a lot, a majority of our facilities do have a natural gas component to those. Um, that, that uh, data and gathering all of that and bringing that to you, that's something that we we don't have readily available at this time, but it's one of the activities is to get a better assessment of all of that. Um, and then also be putting some cost to that um, as we look at our current condition. Um, and then I would say on the, the fleet side, we're looking at um, if you count hybrid vehicles, we haven't measured it down to, you know, the the per gallon of fuel, but we're in that one to two percent electric. Um, we will see that increase with um, with some of the uh, transit vehicles, um, you know, some electric buses and things that we're looking at. But um, we are looking at the CIP and what infrastructure will be needed. There are some options to implement some EV charging stations that are more an off grid. Um, opportunities. So there's there's some technology out there that um, we we could potentially add some EV charging stations um, without a huge infrastructure um, commitment. Um, but at the same time, there's we we have to look at it holistically because that wouldn't um, be applicable for every um, situation. We have to also evaluate the the electric you know, power grid system and does it have the capacity in all the locations that we're talking about um, to make that conversion to electric. So all of that will be taken into consideration for our facilities as well as our fleet. Thank you. Anything else? Um, okay, let's see then if there's some public comment on this item. Is there anyone in the room who would like to comment on this? Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and just when it comes to spending money on streets, I think y'all should do um, a better job of like not wasting money. And what I'm talking about is the owl, all the the road obstacles going on in the owl neighborhood. Um, I think that you all did a Lawrence listens, and over fifty percent of the the 
the survey said that they wanted the barriers removed and not like just re redid and then our the city redid it so I mean, you did the Lawrence listens and over 50 say they don't want them. And instead of removing them, you all just reconfigure and see if they like that. Um, and really, I mean, if 50% of the neighborhood doesn't want it, why would the rest of Lawrence want to spend money on owl road obstacles? So, I mean, if we, if we weren't spending money on stuff like that, we'd have more money to spend on on sidewalks like and I, I do think most most of Lawrence would would want money spent to have sidewalks that connect so you know just so like since because there are streets that don't have sidewalks at all and I think I, I think more people in Lawrence would rather have money spent on having sidewalks on streets that don't have sidewalks than than basically road obstacles that keep people out of neighborhoods. Thank you. Any other comment? Is there anyone uh, on the Zoom at home who would like to make comment on this item? Michael Allman. Hi, good evening, Mayor Shipley and commissioners, Michael Allman. I'm speaking for the Sustainability Action Network. I think uh, Ms. Harger and Ms. Buzzard has done an excellent presentation here and providing valuable information, um, particularly in slide 29 that refers to the project green rating system. Um, if you think about it, if they are digging into the data and using this analysis uh, to basically reduce our climate emissions, this in effect becomes a climate action plan even before you have a plan. Uh, I mean, this getting down to the nitty gritty is really what a plan would call for us to do. So I'm really happy that, that they are working, that you are working on this already. Um, I'm particularly excited about uh, CC11 trips other than single occupancy autos. Uh, that's really what it's all about when Mr. Flowers complains about speed bumps. It's trying to make multimodal more convenient and more desirable than single occupancy vehicles. And I should point out that I think it's more important that the city focus this whole process on transportation emissions rather than building emissions. Although we need to do building emissions reductions too. But consider that you as a city have much more agency to determine how our transportation infrastructure works across the whole city than you do how many of the thousands and thousands of buildings in the city are fun of, uh, powered by renewable energy. You don't have agency in there because the state has banned, has prevented you from banning natural gas, for example, and biogas is virtually not available. So focus on transportation more if you want to reduce emissions. Um, I should point out that right now there's a wayfinding uh, CIP proposal, CIP 221299 from Sustainability Action Network. $693,000 if you want to look it up to hire a consultant and install the wayfinding signs. Uh, we've also 
submitted a CIP 22-1301 for an electric street sweeper. Um, this, is, this is great work. I, I really appreciate that. And um, the miles of trails, CC 13 is another great measure and metric of how we get more uh, transportation that is not consuming fossil fuels. You, you might have that term changed from trails to bikeways or trails and bikeways uh, because bicycle transportation is an actual transportation means, whereas walking, walking is not usually used to get places because it's too slow for long distance, whereas bicycles are comparable to a motor vehicle and getting places. So thank you very much. This is great. Thank you, Michael. Are there any other comments from Zoom? No, Mayor. Great. Uh, let's bring it back to the commission. Um, I did want to make sure, Melinda, I feel like you were wanting some direction on policy needs. And I'm interpreting you there correctly. Melinda Harger, MSO, interim MSO director. Um, I guess some initial discussion uh, would be great. We do plan to bring this back at, at future meetings with some recommendations and more data. But if there's um, any guidance that you have that would help us as we um, move forward over the next couple of months with the CIP, since some of our CIP will be finalized probably before that, those policies are finalized. Um, and you know, just direction on how you would like us to be making some of these decisions on our projects um, in, in the interim, I, I guess would be great. Well, I guess I'll start, I guess. Um, I'm definitely interested in overarching policies on how we do um, build our CIP projects. Definitely interested in that so that all these projects are treated in a similar manner. Because um, at this point, we're really early in the process and I realize that, but the uh, buildings that we have built to date, um, it's come to us kind of piecemeal as to how sustainable do we want to be? And those are important questions. So I think we're at a point now to where we can develop that overarching policy as to this is when we have a, a building we're going to build, we know it's going to be built to a certain level versus having to come back and ask each time. Um, so I'm really happy to hear that, that you guys are working, working on that. I think in the interim, um, and I know this isn't always easy to do is, is to provide as much data as possible as to what those options are. And I, and I realize that that it's not easy, but the more data that we can have when we're making these decisions as the cost, as well as the impact, you know, to our CIP, um, other projects um, that we're wanting to get done and how this fits in with our uh, plan to um, become energy, energy, um, renewable energies by 2035 would be really helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would just, I mean, I guess I'd echo that. I mean, I think, um, you know, well, on the cusp of a lot of these things starting to come to fruition, I mean, you look at the electric cars and, you know, you could buy a whole bunch of Teslas for the you know, the, the police department, but we'll, you know, 
um, a year away from having a lot of different cars come out and pickup trucks coming out. And we're, we're on the cusp of those things. And so, you know, we talked about this a little bit a week or so ago. You know, I'm not sure we have to lead the pack in all of these, but I think we need to be ready um, for that. I mean, again, we're talking about work trucks, for example. There's none on the market today, but two years from now, there probably will be. Um, and so, you know, planning for that in the future, um, I think it's important to start looking at those options. And as Commissioner Little John said, I mean, um, continue to look for those grants and possibilities where we can, um, you know, get that assistance from from the federal government or others. I mean, obviously the electric buses are a no-brainer when you're getting the money from the federal government to buy it. Um, you think, well, of course, we want to, to go electric. Um, and so again, I think continue to watch for that. So I think we're heading in the right direction. I agree that we need a policy and I, and I agree that we should be looking for those um, opportunities as they become available. And I think they'll be, in the coming years, they'll be even more available. Melinda, this is Commissioner Sellers. I think for me, looking at um, one of the things you touched on in regards to the funding piece um, around equipment related to electric vehicles and just the policy around that. Um, for me, I, I'm kind of echoing the sentiments of several of the commissioners here, um, but I think it's a, a matter of one, I don't want us to chase a pot of money without a plan. So I think the, the first part is having the plan of identifying um, to Commissioner Finkeldy's point, identifying current equipment that has that renewable electric piece to it as compared to what we have now, but kind of doing a cost analysis as you discussed earlier. Based on that cost analysis, we can then cross map that with what are current federal dollars that are out there, whether it's through the bipartisan infrastructure, all the infrastructure dollars that are out there, energy dollars that are out there, transportation dollars that are out there, because we know we are working to get a, we're working to get a consultant or we have a consultant that's gonna come on board to help us identify those dollars, but they're gonna need a plan. So for me, seeing that this is not the strongest of my wheelhouses, I'd like to have some type of cost analysis of, you know, what is available out there for us as compo in the comparative as to what that looks like with a, a fleet that's using fuel, taking that out five years, what the cost is going to be comparative to see what the benefit is, what the ROI would that be for us, but then also comparing that to so that we have something to compare the dollars that are out there that will help me have a better understanding of what we're looking at. Because again, we may, you know, we may have departments that want electric vehicles, but that may not be a cost benefit to us right now. But to Commissioner Finkelstein's point, that may be something available to us two to three years outside, depending on where the money is for that. So I don't want us chasing a rainbow or a pot of gold unless we actually have a plan in place. So I think being able to have that cost analysis side-by-side -side comparison, because I don't know. Um, and to your point, building out an infrastructure for electric, you know, electric charging stations or things of that nature. What does that look like compared to fleet vehicles for the city as compared to things for fire, things for, for public works for MSO, our, our, our trash trucks, that's going to look a little bit different. So I don't know what that comparative is. We talked about it a little bit with the um, with the multimodal station, but we didn't really dig deep into it. But that's where I'm at with that piece. Um, 
not to take us too far back, but we, we've kind of tap danced around it tonight, um, was on your, your policy needs for CC14, but globally about the statements of the city's goal for different levels of attainment. And so, you know, I think this is where, I don't know if we're gonna get an answer tonight, but what's been turning in my head is that, you know, once you're bringing on these green rating systems where we have lead and we have envision, it gets to a point with us as commissioners, we need to decide on projects that are coming in to your point, what are we, what is the expectation? Is it expectation for a road project that it hits certified or is it certified adjacent? Um, is it gold and things of that nature? So, um, you know, I don't know how much we can tease out tonight on that or if we have the capacity to do that tonight. Um, but that is something that, you know, I've been thinking about and how do we create those, the, how do we have that lined out into such building projects such as this that we've talked about or Vice Mayor Larson um, brought up briefly um, so that we can get that to you all. Cause I think it, need, it, it needs to be there. And what we identified several weeks ago is that it's there in theory and it's there in spirit, but it's not there in policy. And we need to have some type of consensus of what that is. Is it that a developer or a project bid out has to meet one standard and what is that standard? Does it have to meet two standards? Are there are variations. So um, that's where I'm thinking and I'm, I'm, I wanna get us to that, that place. Um, but this, those are just some of the thoughts on my mind right now about that. Okay, something else. Yeah. Sure. Oh, uh, go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna be, I'm like like always, short and concise as <laughs> much as possible. Um, I know this is coming from our greater conversation. Uh, I believe yeah, last week or the week before, regarding multimodal, as Commissioner Seller said. I thought that was a great start. That you know the way you guys presented it, um, in terms of uh, presenting uh, the costs of certain ways of outfitting it now as opposed to later and how those all costs might increase and uh, how they might be more cost effective in the future. Um, but to Vice Mayor Larson's point, I think a little bit of deeper of a dive might be needed next time. So I, I, like I said, I think it's a great start, but um, a little bit more intensive uh, information uh, would be helpful to go ahead and help us flesh out our ideas and feel a little bit more comfortable with an assessment. Um, but uh, to Commissioner Seller's point, uh, it's something I've been thinking about as well. Um, if we're really serious and intentional about including sustainability and weaving it through our process and policies, uh, we, we might want to make sure that we actually have that verbiage in there or we have something that, especially if we're going to be giving out uh, any sort of benefit uh, to you know, developers or any sort of outside entity that, that we're making sure that they're adhering and following along with what our intentions and our what, what our what our culture is in terms of sustainability. So, um, uh, like I said, summation, great start. Uh, I think we we uh, definitely looks like we'll, we've got some great opportunities ahead of us. So, so could I just add something real quick? Yeah. Um, just one more uh, thing on the, um, when we talk about vehicles and equipment, one thing that I am interested in is is that we look at um, replacing them with um, uh, energy efficient um, models or, or, or equipment um, as they age out and as the equipment breaks, um, but also to, to ensure that when we do that, that um, the technology is there to support it. 
Um, the example uh, Michael Allman had given was um, they're asking for a, an electric um, street sweeper, which you know sounds really good. I it seems to me I remember correct if I remember correctly it was just a couple years ago that we bought a brand new street sweeper. So do we want to? We need to be careful about saying oh let's just switch to something like that. Let's let it age out and then start looking at the options at that point because we all know technology in this area is changing so quickly. Um, but um, let's make sure we use our money wisely and, and that, that our efficiencies are there. Melinda, did, does that help you at all? Melinda Harder, Interim MSO Director. It does. Yes. I took lots of notes, so we will, we will move that direction. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to hear about? Um, Melinda Harger, MSO Interim Director. Out of all the things that were mentioned, if there is one policy we were to prioritize to bring to you first, um, you know, do you have a preference on that? Is it where do we want to see um, our new projects in the CIP? you know, land in terms of certification? Is it um, focused more on the fleet side of things? Does it get more information on the conversion to natural gas? You know, is there, is there a specific area? Is it something like irrigation? I heard um, when we were talking about the multimodal facility, it seemed like that was pretty consistent. Um, you know, do we want an irrigation policy? So if there's a prioritization in terms of what we would focus on first, um, just you know, limited capacity. Um, we want to make sure we're we're um, going after the the biggest impact, um, or or what you would like to see first. Um, did you feel like this study that you were talking about earlier is going to help us with any kind of information on that? Like, I mean, I guess they've been telling us for a long time. You know, cars. You can get electric cars now, um, but I guess it's been mentioned by Vice Mayor Larson and everyone else. The technology is changing so much, and new batteries being invented, and all this. Um, you know, are we betting on the right horse uh, based on information from experts? Melinda Harger, Interim MSO Director. I would say probably the timeline for that, we'll have to see what proposals we get in and what um, you know the selected consultants would say is reasonable in terms of that. I don't know that we'd want to put the effort into developing something to have a consultant say, well, you should have, you should have maybe gone this route with it. Um, so that is one that, you know, if we're getting outside help, finding out from them first before we would propose a schedule would be good. I guess I would say possibly the, in addition to that, maybe the policy on, um, as Commissioner Lawson mentioned, Vice Mayor Lawson mentioned, kind of standardizing a policy for CIP, what we might be building towards. I mean, I think that might be that level that we want. Um, might be, if you're prioritizing, might be a good place to start. Commissioner Sellers always says policy is a good place to start if you have to pick one. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> I, I am also interested in the, the prospect of um, understanding better the electric versus gas options. Because um, that, actually that was something that 
um, was a little bit new to me during that meeting we had a few weeks ago was, was that uh, so many of our facilities are operate off of gas. And so I would like to understand that better, whether that's through policy or just more discussions on it um, with you. Um, I, don't, I don't know, but that's definitely an area I'm interested in as far as policy. All right, is that good for you, Melinda? It is, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you, Angela, too, um, for your presentation. Um, we've been hacking away at this for a while, so I wanna give um, the other commissioners, uh, I, I, we haven't met in person for so long. I don't know if 10 minutes is enough. Does anybody have an opinion here? <laughs> 15, I'm hearing 15, okay. Um, let's see, let's say then eight, 25, what was that giving? Yep. Okay, thanks. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Uh, let's return to our meeting here. Um, let's get to our regular agenda item number one. Okay. I think that'll be Catherine Week, but maybe I don't see her. Oh, there she is. We can't hear you. Sorry about that. Okay, good evening. Okay. This is Catherine Week um, with the Planning Department. I'm here to present regular item number one, which is, is to consider a, a rezoning request uh, for approximately 2.10 acres from IG, the Urban Conservation Overlay, to CS Urban Conservation Overlay. And the property is located at 620 East 8th Street. Just to let you know, um, planning staff did not receive any additional communications from the time um, in late January when the planning commission heard this item. However, I do believe that the city clerk's office did receive some communications that were added to the packet today. So those did get added to your packet, um, but planning staff has no additional communications that came in. Um, so as part of this request, um, the applicant is proposing to rezone this area that is zoned industrial to commercial strip with the urban conservation overlay district and that would be to accommodate um, an eating and drinking establishment um, with some accessory gathering spaces on the property and so currently the ig district does not permit those uses um, any of the food and beverage or eating and drinking establishment uses but cs does and so the 8th and Penn Conservation Overlay District, uh, for context on the site, it is part of um, the 8th and Penn Conservation Overlay District, which has the 8th and Penn design guidelines. The site is also located in the East Lawrence neighborhood. Um, so those are the context issues um, with this particular site. So the, the current rezoning uh, requests um, and rezonings are required to submit concept plans. Um, not necessarily full-on development plans, but the concept for what the proposal would um, entail. And this concept plan proposes, as I mentioned, a restaurant or eating and drinking establishment, which also serves alcoholic beverages and some accessory gathering spaces or activity spaces um, on the site for outdoor dining um, and gathering and some passive recreation, um, whatever the, um, that might entail. And so on January 26th, um, planning staff presented this item to the planning commission. And um, there, the discussion in that uh, commission meeting weighed heavily 
on the conditions that are recommended with this particular rezoning, um, particularly those related to the alcohol sales. And we'll get into those uh, conditions in a moment. Um, but at the conclusion of their public hearing, um, the Lawrence Douglas County uh, Planning Commission uh, voted six to four to recommend approval um, with the staff recommended conditions. And, and I went ahead at the request of the city commissioner attached um, the uh, slides from the planning commission meeting to kind of help guide the discussion. We could um, scroll through those in your packet um, if you want. I believe they start on a page 28 of the packet, but I'm gonna try to screen share um, and kind of guide you through those um, as we talk about this. So let me see if I can do this correctly here. So again, I'm just kind of going to scroll through these slides. Um, this was from the Planning uh, Commission, um, and this will give you the general uh, information that you need to make your determination um, on the recommendation before you. So this is the area that the property is located. It's in the north um, east area of the or East Lawrence neighborhood. Um, it's at kind of the north apex of Pennsylvania Street and the intersection at Bates Street. This is a good visual map to show you the context of the zoning in the area. Um, the shaded blue area is the 8th and Penn Conservation Overlay District. Um, and that hatched area that you see in the district are the rezonings that have taken place. And the hatching indicates that it's conditional zoning um, in the district. The blue area is actually areas um, that have not been rezoned yet, except for the RN32 um, at 619 uh, Delaware. Again, this application proposal is to change from the industrial zoning, which is the IGUC, to commercial, which would accommodate um, the proposed uses um, with that overlay uh, changing. I've prepared a table um, in this, and we can refer back to this if we need to get into the discussion on particular uses that are permitted in com commercial district um, without any conditions. Um, in this table, will list out all the uses that are permitted by right, and then also uses that are permitted um, if they go through the SUP process. And we can refer back to these if you have specific questions about um, those particular uses that could be permitted. This is a concept plan um, that was permitted, or that was submitted with uh, the application request. Again, there are no specific development plans. Those would come later. This is just for the rezoning. It's a concept. Um, the concept being that they would restore or rehabilitate um, the existing structure on the site to accommodate a restaurant with um, food and beverage services and then have some outdoor uh, dining and recreation areas. The blue area would indicate parking and access areas for the site. So if um, a rezoning were to be approved, obviously um, the city commission make that approval and then an adoption of publication of the ordinance would have to take place with this particular property there are some other uh, planning application uh, processes that they would need to go through part of this property is still unplatted property so they would still need to go through the preliminary and final plat approval process for that platting and then and that is a, a public hearing the preliminary plat is a public hearing through the planning commission uh, final planning is an administrative process. And then site plan approval for the development plan 
um, and that is also an administrative process and then any building permits that would be required for the actual development of the site. So those are all later steps in the process after uh, our rezoning. And this is um, just kind of an outline of the eight review criteria that um, planning staff always analyzes rezoning requests against. Just to kind of go through those, um, we're not going to go through all of them. They're all outlined in the staff report by section, but just to kind of remind um, both planning commission when we present these um, and the city commission that those eight criteria are what every rezoning um, is um, analyzed um, against. And those are the conformance with the comprehensive plan, uh, whether the zoning and the use of nearby properties is compatible, what is the character of the neighborhood, um, are there any adopted area or neighborhood plans, what about, um, the property has suitability for the uses for which it has currently been restricted under their current zoning. If the property is in vacant a length of time of vacancy, if there are any detrimental effects or potential detrimental effects to neighboring property, and then if there's any gain to the public, if the application were to be denied. Um, a little bit of brief zoning history on this particular um, area because it is in the conservation overlay district uh, the context is important because the district um, it does um, regulate or control um, what types of uses are permitted in the district um, so in 2006 the overlay district was established and then again in 2006 um, those old code designations um, the i'm sorry yes the old industrial co-designations of M2 and M3. Most of those converted to the commercial, which was C5 with that urban conservation overlay district. And it added the conditions that restricted certain uses that were not deemed compatible with that district or the neighborhood. And then in later in 2006, the adoption of the land development code, um, where that C5 or commercial designation converted to our new commercial designation code, which is CS, um, which is what you see today. The commercial uses are still similar, um, but it just changed that um, terminology from C5 uh, to CS. And then in 2013, we had a rezoning from an RM12D UC district to a commercial district, again with those conditions. And these these rezonings are the ones that are being indicated by the hatching that you saw on that map that have taken place. In 2019, uh, an application that started in 2019 but actually was finalized in 2020 um, was to rezone, I believe this was at 804 Penn, um, from a similar industrial zone property from IG to um, CS, and again with the conditions. And we'll talk about those conditions in a minute. Um, little refresher on the purpose and the intent of conditional zoning. Um, types of conditions um, must either meet or exceed the established design standards. And then specifically, um, they restrict uses that are permitted by right or um, they restrict them by a special use permit in the district. And that special use permit um, process um, leads into criteria three, which creates an enhanced notice requirement for post changes um, to uh, for 
notification for property owners for future developments um, where it may typically be an administrative process, say through site planning, um, the SUP provides that additional notification and public hearing um, for a government entity or neighbors so that um, additional restrictions or limitations can be placed to comply with those guidelines. And so conditional zoning um, may be considered where there is a clear and specific goal or a policy recommendation of an improved neighborhood or nodal plan or sector plan um, or in the comprehensive plan or where there's clear harm or aggravation um, to neighboring properties or the surrounding area and it can be mitigated by a condition. And so just to kind of touch on uh, what those eighth and 10 guidelines um, the intent of that district or the intent of the guidelines in that district is to create a mixed use district um, by establishing uh, one by establishing a base designated uh, district zoning that controls the land uses within the district and two that creates standards by which the development um, is guided in the district and so that does tie into um, why staff feels conditional zoning is appropriate in this district and why it has been historically used in the past because there is a definite and specific goal for this area um, in the district. And then also another context uh, related to the site that it's located in the East Lawrence neighborhood. Um, in 2000, there was a, um, a East Lawrence revitalization plan that was updated. Um, and the action plan um, for in that plan is to maintain and improve the vitality of the neighborhood and to kind of reinvigorate um, areas that need um, activity but still be compatible with the neighborhood and um, the district or and the yes the, the, the neighborhood and surrounding area. So that kind of gives you the context of where um, staff um, has landed in their analysis on why we're implementing um, a recommendation for conditional zoning in this um, particular area. So, and to talk about the conditions uh, specifically, staff has outlined two specific conditions. Um, basically, uh, staff is recommending approval with conditions that are similar to the CS zoning that already exists um, in the district. So there is a list of uses that um, are deemed to be not um, appropriate for this particular district or, or incompatible with the neighborhood. And those listed are in condition number one um, that are prohibited. And then alcohol sales is also listed as a restricted um, in previous rezonings uh, for the CS uh, UC district in the 8th and Penn district, bars and lounges were prohibited. Um, however, um, they could be uh, compatible if that 55-45 um, alcohol to food sales ratio um, was, at, was conditioned. And so previous zonings had pro prohibited bar and lounge with the exception of if they met that 45 um, to 55 alcohol and food sales, they could potentially be permitted. The most recent zoning that took uh, place in 2021 
um, that just went through um, at 801 Penn um, was a modification to an existing uh, zoning condition that had that 55-45% uh, limitation. That was modified to also add um, another planning tool, which was that SUP process. So they could be permitted with the alcohol limitation or they could apply for an SUP and be permitted in that in that way. And so that, that was applied at 801 Penn. So staff has come to these um, conditions in this particular rezoning as a way to um, kind of simplify that process. Because in 2021, um, the city modified uh, the alcohol sales ordinance or resolution in the downtown district to be a bit less restrictive, where the 45 to 55 alcohol to food sales converted to basically 40, a, limit, a limit of 45% of total gross receipts. So no longer did they have to meet the 55% food sales, but the 55% could be garnered through any type of retail or other sales receipts, not just food. In keeping with um, new codes and um, moving forward, staff felt that that similar less restrictive interpretation of um, the alcohol sales could also be appropriate in the uh, 8th and Penn district. And so instead of prohibiting bars and lounges, staff simply has made the condition that um, food and beverage um, establishments could be permitted as long as alcohol beverage sales are no more than 45%. And so just simplifying it to alcohol sales no more than 45% is how staff got to the second condition. There is always the opportunity that if for some reason the commission doesn't feel this condition would be appropriate. The SUP process similar to the most recent rezoning could also be um, modified as part of a condition um, to help the compatibility with the 8th and Penn um, overlay district and still permit some flexibility. So there is that um, potential. In short, staff is recommending approval uh, for this rezoning request um, um, at eight, or 620 East 8th Street from IGUC to CSUC with conditions um, as stated in the staff report and as recommended by uh, the Planning Commission. So hopefully that will kind of guide you um, through that particular process. Let's see if I can stop sharing here for a second. <clears throat> and so that we also we had some very good questions um, that came in from fellow commissioners. Um, and so I wanted to touch on some of those as well. And more of those may come up uh, later when we get to those as well. So um, the 45% or alcohol restriction sales is not a limitation that is dictated by the overlay district or the design guidelines. That was something that has been established since 2006 when um, the district was implemented. And as rezonings have come before commissions in the past, those rezonings have been approved with conditions 
to basically prohibit the bar lounge use, um, but still permit some flexibility for other food and beverage establishments. And so that, that was something that was kind of touched on the planning commission meeting, but I'm not sure we um, clearly explained that at that time. The other thing um, that came up with heavy discussion, which you all might have questions about as well, is that 45% alcohol sales number. That 45%, 55% ratio is um, also touched on in the other um, overlay district downtown. But the 45% number also comes into play from the de code definition in the land development code of a bar or lounge use. So again, this uh, rezoning proposal for an eating establishment with alcohol sales and some ancillary or accessory activities, um, that is how this rezoning was uh, reviewed. And bar and lounge use is something um, that has been deemed not appropriate in the past. And so the 45% food sales, um, once, once you are over that 45% number, you are no longer in, based on the land de um, development code definitions, you're no longer a restaurant, you are a bar or a lounge. And so that is where um, I think the 45 and then the 45, 55 um, numbers kind of jive between those resolutions that have been passed in the past and then this um, code definition for bar and lounge. <clears throat> We also had a um, couple questions about um, liquor licensing and staff did not place any restrictions on or recommend any restrictions on time limits. Um, we did clarify with city clerk that um, liquor licenses are good for um, two years. They're issued for a two year period and then they have to renew um, after that period. And they have to provide their uh, reports if they're under the 45, 55% um, percent requirement, they do have to provide the, re the reports to the city clerk's office for renewal of that liquor license. Um, so that process is pretty straightforward and staff did not um, add any type of condition um, to the rezoning recommendation in that regard. And then the other thing is that um, conditional zonings um, only apply to the properties um, that are being rezoned. Um, if you were to change recommendations or conditions um, with your rezoning, if you choose to do that, does not change the overlay district. It does not, we, did, we wouldn't have to change the overlay district or um, revise the design guidelines in any way. They're, those are separate things. So they, it only applies to the property that's being rezoned, um, the conditions that are applied. That's a lot of information on this one. And I know you probably have questions and I would be happy to stand for those if you have them. So. Um, I want to double check here. Do we need to uh, declare any ex parte communications before we carry on? Yes. Oh, thank you, Randy. <laughs> I didn't expect you to actually be in the room. I apologize. Right. <laughs> yes, you do need to uh, disclose ex parte communications. Very good. Let's do that at this time. Um, I was contacted um, by Mr. Krasnick. Uh, I don't believe he said anything different than he said at planning. Anybody else? Uh, I talked to Tony as well. 
same thing. We had a short conversation about what he had at planning. Nope. 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 Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, let's go ahead then. Any other questions for um, staff? Question. The, um, the the food versus the alcohol numbers, is there other items involved with that? Uh, the, is it, does it have to be food sales that they count or are there other aspects to that? So it used to be food sales in the CS district. Staff is actually, actually recommending a revised condition where it's 45% is the limit for alcohol sales. The 55% can be met with any other sales. So it could be rental, it could be food, it could be t-shirts, it could be any other sales receipts that they have could meet that 55%. Thank you. And then my um, second question is, where did the 45-55 number come from? What is that? Was there data collected that said that was kind of a tipping point? Um, where did it come from? Well, that was before my time, so Jeff might want to chime in, but I believe it comes from the original alcohol sales restriction that was in the downtown district. And then when the land development code um, was redone in 2006, um, that 45%-55% was carried into the, the definitions or the use definitions for the CD district, but it was also um, put into the uh, definition for bar and lounge. That 45% alcohol sales is specific to bar and lounge definition. Jeff can extrapolate a little more if he has more information on that. Good evening, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Catherine is right. The, the original rule was the 55% food sales started back in about the mid-1993 era when the City Commission adopted a policy as part of the downtown zoning district. And as over the years has carried on, as that the zoning converted into the land development code, that 55% food sales rule was carried forward and just recently modified to the not more than 45% alcohol sales. But it's been a excuse me, been a rule the City Commission had a adopted in the mid and July or June of 93. But we don't have any information as to why that number 45 was picked <coughs> or 55. Jeff Craig playing development service. I'd have to go back through the, to the history of the, the case because that does predate me too. But I, I think there was some research that was conducted back in the 1990s about why they chose 55% food sales, but I don't have that available just off the top of my head. Okay, thank you. Any other questions for staff? Um, Commissioner Lojohn, and was I right in understanding, uh, Catherine, that uh, the currently in downtown, it, the 55% is with gross receipts, right? That that was the new thing, correct? That was the modification that right. the downtown district received and staff kind of carried that thinking over to their recommendation for the eighth and pen. Um, as creative business plans come forward and during the time of COVID when we were trying to accommodate more creative business plans, um, the gross receipts was a change that was made uh, to that alcohol restrictions. Any other questions for staff? Okay. Um, I've done one of these in so long. Do we want to, <laughs> do we want to let the applicant speak for a little while? Um, okay, there he is. <laughs> Please come forward. 
Um, my name is Tony Kresnick. I own uh, Kennedy Glass here in town, as well as uh, Flint Hills Holdings Group. And although I uh, live 45 minutes away, um, as many of you know, I'm here uh, multiple times a week and I love this town. Um, and I'd first like to say, because I didn't hear, if nothing else, I didn't hear anybody else say it. I wanted to commend the city staff, the police department, and the fire department on all of uh, the wonderful festivities that uh, went on uh, over the last uh, uh, days leading up to our sixth national championship. And I intentionally used the word six. Um, I, uh, I'm here today asking um, for the city council to approve 60% uh, alcohol sales uh, here on this property and not the 45% um, number uh, that has been used uh, uh, downtown and, and, and applied here. Um, and I've had uh, some wonderful conversations with city staff and I, I believe that, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a 20 year old document and, and times change. And I believe that there's some reasons uh, for those changes. And I'd like to get into that here uh, briefly and talk about the, the merits of this project um, in no particular order. Um, part of this project um, is obviously the salvation and the restoration of uh, what's formerly or commonly referred to as the Quonset hut. And along with that, um, I have uh, told the uh, farmer's market uh, that I would donate the space net net free of charge to them uh, as a permanent space. Um, we want to have a dog friendly courtyard uh, for the neighborhood, which um, is all of us know Lawrence is a very dog friendly town. Uh, we want to have games for the community and kids such as pickleball, bocce ball, bean bags. We want to have outdoor music, outdoor theater, outdoor film. Um, we have uh, worked with the city of Lawrence and agreed to donate an eight foot, uh, 18 foot easement along the perimeter of the property. Uh, to connect the regional bike loop. And, and I know I'm not using the right terminology there, but that's the way I think of it is, is a bike loop. Um, I already talked about the preserving of uh, the old building. We have been working with the State Historic Preservation Office as well as Lynn Zollner to get the building listed on the National Registry. Uh, this is a huge job creation, uh, job retention uh, uh, project. Um, and we're also working with local partners and operators as well three of which that want to uh, work on this project and be uh, involved and operate and own this project with us uh, that are very well known here in the community. And I apologize, I cannot uh, name them now, um, but I, I promise you that, that we have narrowed it down to three. Um, the property provides private um, parking on site. In fact, uh, we provide a lot of excess parking. Um, not to mention the uh, beautiful new city parking lot is adjacent to this par uh, property as well. And that city lot is between the train station is, uh, and Kennedy Glass, uh, quite literally touches uh, the property. Um, we've committed to the city that uh, on that side of the street that we would uh, allow for a bus stop to go in there. Um, and we believe that this is a nationally uh, significant cultural development and in many regards could have a larger culture of it cultural impact on what I did at the Cider Gallery, um, which uh, my friend Wayne Props always refers to as a gift to the community. We want to have affordable food uh, on the property, which uh, actually creates a big challenge for us here. And I always use the example, 
if somebody wanted to walk their dog up uh, to the Terrapin, which is what we're calling the, um, the establishment, and order two beers for $3 a piece and one taco for $3 a piece, um, alcohol would be represented by 67% uh, on that transaction. Um, and I don't think that that guy or a gal that walked the dog up and had two beers in the taco, I, I don't think that they've done anything wrong. And I, and I, and I, and uh, for, for, for those reasons, that's what one of the main points I'd really like us to consider tonight. We've also committed to make a donation from the proceeds uh, to Just Food, a reoccurring donation, um, just as I did when I founded the Kansas Food Truck Festival years and years ago. And so um, here, here's the problem. The, the, these are the problems and challenges I'm facing. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing to also note is that the square footage of this building, 6,600 square feet compared to the land size, is actually less than 8% uh, of the total property size, which uh, distinguishes us from everyone in Lawrence and frankly, most people in the state of Kansas. The policy of, uh, of imposing the per uh, percentage limitation for alcohol sales was uh, designed to preserve downtown and probably doesn't make a lot of sense to impose it to an area that's disconnecting, uh, disconnected from downtown, it's troublesome. If this property was in another area equidistant from downtown, we most likely wouldn't have to have this conversation at all. It would just be a traditional down zoning. We are not asking for an SCP, which would permit this. We are not asking for a large event center where the liquor is derived from a catering license, which would also permit this. We are in support of others in this area um, that might want to ask for the same thing in the future. Um, uh, which frankly is to run a business in, abs in absence of frustrating the patrons and the staff and running the risk of getting shut down if the business actually does thrive. Um, through talking, uh, a lot of the people that I've talked to about this have said, well, Tony, everybody finds a way around this. Um, that, that wasn't good enough for me. I don't want to uh, break rules. I don't want to sign up for something that I don't think is gonna be in compliance day one. And just so everybody knows what I've learned through talking and retaining multiple attorneys and accounting firm and actually a well-known local alcohol lobbyist is that um, some people, for example, brew beer on site uh, and sell it at another location, cutting out the middleman. Um, it appears that that's not legal. Other people, um, you know, will take a vodka soda and they'll ring it in as two separate transactions instead of six bucks for a vodka soda on the POS system, they'll ring in a $3 soda and a $3 vodka, which believe it or not is actually legal so long that you serve the vodka in a separate shot glass, which obviously is not something that I wanna promote down there in the warehouse arts district, nor do I believe the city wants to promote that. Um, something that uh, also occurs apparently is that people charge uh, money to get in the front door. Um, and at that point, uh, the alcohol would be sold at a greatly reduced price. Uh, we found sometimes that's 75 cents. Sometimes uh, if rumors hold true, that's actually free. Um, brings me back to my college days. That's what the uh, old Cadillac Ranch used to be like. You'd get a, a wristband when you walked in. Um, I've developed and own the vast majority of the property in the area, and I would never do anything to hurt my investment or the interests of my tenants 
over the salvation of a 6,600 square foot blighted Kwanzaa hut. This building has been listed uh, below market value for rent and has not been leased as, as it is unoccupiable, uh, doesn't even have insulation. Many who tour the building believe it should be torn down. I'm wanting to be transparent and pragmatic and find a reasonable accommodation here. And again, we are not asking for a waiver on alcohol requirements. We are simply wanting something that is achievable, achievable and shows good faith. And I believe I've done that here with this proposal. We have a very unique opportunity before us here and something that I believe will be a regional destination and something that's nationally significant. And um, I just wanted to uh, thank you for your consideration. I'm happy to answer any questions. Any questions? <clears throat> Not seeing anything. Okay, um, let's make sure we won't have any comments, some public comment here. Is there any public comment in the room? Oh, am I skipping something? Oh, okay, I'm good. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I would just, this is Chris Flowers. I would like to support him, especially about the 4555. I mean, if you're going to let a place serve alcohol, that, that should just be it. Can you, I mean, if, can you serve alcohol? It, it, there shouldn't be, well, you can only serve 20% of sales or 50% of sales. It's if you get an alcohol license, you should be allowed to serve it. And here's a question I have. Um, I was thinking about loopholes myself. And here's a, something I'm just curious. Would this be allowed? You know how you, when you go to vote, you get those I vote stickers. What if a, a restaurant, they made um, stickers of their place? It's just like their logo, about the size of an I, vote, I voted sticker. And they charge, let's say, $5. But they have a special. You can get a 10-cent beer if you buy the sticker for like $5. So total, I don't know, like five, $5.10 for a beer and a sticker. But would the $5 count for the sticker and not? I mean, because you're getting, it's a deal. It's like a combo. You're getting the $5 sticker and like the 10-cent beer. Would the ten cents go towards the alcohol and the five dollars go towards the other? I mean, what's to keep a restaurant from charging two things together and charging the thing that they need um, at a high price and what they don't need at a low price? I mean, I, 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 that's my serious question: is as as how we have it written, could a restaurant do that and legally? get away with it. So, and I, 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 I want the restaurant to be able to do that and get away with it. Cause I, I think it's kind of BS that you have these rules to begin with. So that's just why I, I just want to throw that out there. Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? Um, is there any online public comment? Barry Shalinsky. <clears throat> Hello, uh, my name is Barry Shalinsky. I'm uh, 645 Connecticut Street, president of the East Lawrence Neighborhood Association. Um, there is a letter from us uh, to the Planning Commission in the packet. Um, I wanted to address the issue of alcohol sales. Um, I want to remind you all that 
uh, zoning runs with the land and is in perpetuity. Uh, so regardless of who is owning and operating uh, a facility at this property, once they have a permission for 60% alcohol, uh, that is there forever. Um, I think that um, what's being asked here is for the city commission to pick winners and losers. We have um, the Lawrence Beer Company, uh, Bon Bon, um, several other businesses in the uh, warehouse arts area and the downtown that are following the current rule. And um, the request is to make an exception and create a competitive advantage uh, for this particular entity. I don't think that is appropriate. I think it would be much more appropriate to um, do a special use permit if they find that it is not feasible to run the business in this manner, but several other businesses have shown that it is in fact quite feasible to do so. Um, I'm really not understanding some of the logic here either. We're talking about a farmer's market, we're talking about um, kids, and we're talking about alcohol. It seems like the farmer's market by itself would um, create the 55% non-alcohol revenue. So um, uh, I just, I think there's a lot of inconsistencies. I think you're being asked to buy a pig in the poke. I certainly hope that this is successful, um, but uh, I don't think 60% alcohol is appropriate without a much more clearly defined business plan and a demonstration of need. Thank you. Michael Allman. Michael Allman. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> uh, thank you, Michael Allman. Uh, I'm speaking for myself tonight, although I am the vice president of Brook Creek neighborhood and I, uh, I sympathize with another neighborhood dealing with um, issues that could compromise the livability in certain sense. I also think that for consistency's sake and fairness, that this particular restaurant establishment and Mr. Krishnik has said that he intends this to be a restaurant, that it play by the same rules that all the other restaurants in the area and that he not um, come up with a means to really create it as a lounge or a bar, which would not be appropriate with childcare center or even a farmer's market. And I wanna point out that the area that he's indicating on the map to be the parking area that the farmer's market would use is 5,000 square feet smaller than their existing farmer's market, which 
is already too small. So I really wonder about the viability of that. Um, in, in all of Mr. Krishnik's sincere indication of all the wonderful things he's going to do with this space, if, if he uh, sincerely intends this to be working financially as a restaurant and that he doesn't want to break rules and bend rules and pull schemes to make his alcohol sales higher, why doesn't he simply accept 45% unless he has some idea that he wants to do more than that, and, and that would end up being a bar. So he can't have it both ways. Either he really wants to keep this as a restaurant function, or he wants it a bar, which is it? So I just wanted to point that inconsistency out, and I suggest that uh, you, you take the staff recommendation. Thank you. Any other online comment? No, Mayor. Okay. Um, we'll bring it back to the commission and then if anyone has any questions for you, which they very well might. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were wanting to comment on the comments. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> good evening, uh, Mayor Shipley and commissioners. My name is Rick Hurd. I'm an attorney here in Lawrence and I represent Mr. Kresnick. Um, and there were just a couple of comments that I want to make. Um, I told uh, Commissioner Littlejohn when I introduced myself, I, I moved to Lawrence in 1966. I've seen a lot of changes in Lawrence, a lot of changes in downtown, and a lot of projects that have been wonderful for this community. And I think this is one of them. There are some policy considerations here that I think the commission needs to take into consideration. We're dealing with a alcohol limitation of 45% that appears to be entirely arbitrary and was designed to maintain downtown. This is not connected to downtown. And I question whether as a policy issue, it should be applied in this particular spot. When Mr. Kresnick came to me, it was refreshing that I had a client that didn't ask, how do I get around this? It was, how do I present to the city commission in an understandable manner and have them consider the merits of this? If he wanted to play games and try and get around this, he could try that, but that's not how he approached this. And I have to commend him for that. Mr. Shalinsky's comments were a little surprising since his letter says uh, East Lawrence Neighborhood Association's board has decided to neither support or oppose the rezoning at this time. Um, and his letter goes on to state some concerns, but it's, it was my understanding that they neither uh, opposed it or supported it, that they were going to remain neutral. So I was a little surprised with that. Is it a suggestion that, they, that Mr. Kresnick could use the farmer's market revenue to help meet his percentage of non-alcohol revenues uh, missed the point. He was donating the use of the facility for the farmer's market. There would be zero revenues. So I, I don't think it's fair to attack him from that standpoint. This is a project that is unique. 
it is basically an outdoor oriented project. It's not the same as Lawrence Beer Company. It's not the same as 23rd Street Brewery or any other bar restaurant that you can point to. It's a unique project. And growing up in Lawrence, when I saw this area as, as kind of a blighted area, and what he has done is to transform this area into a true asset for this community. Fine. It's his investment and I don't think he's gonna do anything to harm it. I hope you will support his request. Thank you. Okay, any others, make, just make sure no other public comment. One last try here. I don't see any on that. Okay, let's go ahead and bring it back to the commission. Um, any discussion? This this might be a question for staff, or maybe it's a question for the applicant, but oh, somebody I don't know. The I mean, if the farmers market was there, would the income not that Tony would get the income, but the, the sales of the food would that count? This might actually be um, for the city clerk, but I think I can touch on it. So. Um, the whoever holds the liquor license is the one that's going to have to report the sales and they report that to the state of Kansas um, and then that report that um, at the renewal time is provided to the city of Lawrence um, so the farmers market would not be holding the liquor license whatever entity would be operating the business at um, 620 East 8th Street would be holding the liquor license. So they would be the ones that would be generating sales. If they're not getting any income from the farmer's market, then that would not go on their sales report. So it'd have to be, It, I thought we had expanded, so it wouldn't have to be sales. So for example, if they rented the parking spaces to somebody and, and generate income that way, that would be income generated that would not. <clears throat> That's correct. Would be countable. So it wouldn't necessarily have to be sales. Correct. So any revenue, it's gross receipts. So if they're renting parking spaces, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but so if they, yeah. I'm making this up, if they rented the space to Farmers Market for $75,000 and then donated $75,000 to the Farmers Market, that would work because that would be $75,000 in income. Yeah, I think that's a question for legal. I think that's outside the scope of planning staffs. <laughs> yeah, I'm legal, I guess. That's why I think of these things. <laughs> I'm like, Rick, they come into my office and ask how to get around these things. Okay, anyway, just thinking that through. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to check something with Catherine real quick because um, I, I do want to push back um, a little bit about this idea that it's only created to protect downtown because there are bars all over town and, and strip malls and they may have a little bit of snacks or whatever, but uh, just to clarify, a business like this that makes more than 45, 55, or even 60% is allowed to exist in many other districts in this town. Uh, yes, so um, a bar and lounge use is a permitted use in any CS district. And while the liquor um, limitation may have initiated in downtown or in the downtown district, since 2006, it's certainly been an element in the 8th and Penn Overlay District as well. So consistently from 2006, this limitation has been applied to limit the development of bars in that district. So, but still permit 
food and beverage and eating and drink, drinking establishments. They just cannot rise to the level of the definition of a bar. And, and there are bars that are in uh, residential areas that are problematic. Um, we know that for a fact. Um, if you want to go to Old West Lawrence and see what happens with the wheel and the hawk and whatever they're calling the triangle now uh, has a real effect on the neighborhood. Um, visceral one that we hear about all the time. Any other comments? Um, I got a question. Uh, it might not necessarily be related to Mr. Krishni's uh, proposal or you know his uh, his request. Uh, have we determined or have we ever looked at uh, the 45, 55% if it's uh, somewhat similar in the area, if we're falling in line with that? Um, just alluding to uh, Vice Mayor uh, Larson's previous question that we don't really know where it came from in the first place. I just want to make sure that it's something that you know other other cities are doing, or just to make sure. So, not sure I, who that would be for. I don't know if that research was done when they modified the downtown district ordinance and to see if there were similar things that were done. I don't know if Jeff has any, any additional information on that modification that took place for the liquor restriction. Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Back in 2004, staff at that time researched uh, other college towns in the area, so uh, Norman, Lincoln, and some other places to look if they had very similar kind of rules related to food to alcohol sales. And the memo that they produced at that time did find a, a number of them did have some percentage of sales kind of differentiate between those two uses. And so that's kind of where that, that took root in 2004 when that research started. Staff has not looked at that in a more recent light, I would say, from the planning and development services side of things. But when we looked at changing from the 55% food sales to a 45% alcohol sales downtown, we looked back at the land development code and some of the guidance in there to help align with that code definition differential between what is an establishment in a restaurant versus when it does fall into that bar lounge use. And so that 45% that we use in that definition is kind of our, our touch point to help guide us on that discussion when we had that conversation of converting from the food sale 55% to the not more than 45% alcohol sales. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I was just trying to find the genesis of it and, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, it, uh, I always like if I'm going to make a decision about something, you kind of know a little bit about the background. So thank you for that, Jeff. So Jeff, you, you had indicated that back in what, 2004, that you had looked at some other um, college towns and you said you found some data or some data was found. Do you know what that data is? Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services. I was not here in 2004, so I couldn't, I did not conduct the data, but the data from the memo that was produced found at that time, uh, city of Norman, Oklahoma, uh, allows, let's see, defined as receiving more than 50% of its gross sales to obtain a liquor license. If the establishment is not a restaurant or unable to meet the 50% requirement, it is defined as a bar or a nightclub under their code at that point in time. Um, Lincoln and Nebraska did not report any limit on the number of drinking establishments in their downtown, but there was a state law at that time that established, excuse me, prevented establishing alcohol sales within 300 feet of the university property. Uh, the city of Austin also had a very similar distancing and separation requirement. It's, apologies for 
can't read one screen with glasses and the other one without. Sorry about that. Um, K-State at that time, excuse me, Manhattan did not report having a very similar item on that one. And the that time it looks like Madison, Wisconsin was developing a work group on very similar issues that we were experiencing, but did not have anything to report in, in 2004. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? This is Commissioner Sellers. I was just thinking about this because I was about a month or so ago, I was in St. Louis and um, had visited a establishment that's very similar to what the applicant is discussing tonight. It was an open area, fire pits, but, you know, yard games, place to sit your pit, you know, sit your dog. There were some kids there. There was a lot of adults there. Um, and there was food and there was alcohol. And it was a bar. And so I guess when I see things like affordable food, open space, play, children, family, fun, I don't center to alcohol. And so I, I think for me, I'm just struggling with some of the pushback on 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 the alcohol piece. Um, and I and I get it. The I you know, as far as applicable to being downtown, it's different, it's unique. And we can say all those you know panache words that we want to say. But if we're talking about family and we're talking about community and we're talking about affordable and we're talking about accessible and equitable, then the fact that we're hung up on alcohol, just, it just it's just turning my head right now. So um, I think that's just kind of where I'm at. I, I think there's a lot of divergent factors going on here and it's just causing a little bit of chaos in my mind because I don't see why increasing it, it would be a benefit, especially if it's about bringing families together. Um, I think if I had my family and my nieces and nephews and we had our, uh, we had a dog or we had a cat and we were there, I don't want to be around a bunch of people drinking alcohol and then that's it. I don't, it, it just, it, it seems at odds with me. And there's a lot of things at play that I feel like this This is a jumbled soup of things that sound good, um, that would be wonderful. And I think it would be a wonderful experience. Um, but the fact that we're hung up on alcohol, just it's a little bit, it's hitting a nerve with me a bit, so. I think my struggle is that we, and you've been luckily the one pointing this out recently, we do have a policy, a very specific one, and it's been used consistently. And it's pretty clear that it was intentional in 2006 that it would apply to this area. Um, and so we are in fact being asked to get around it. That is exactly what we're being asked. And I'm, I really struggle with making individual decisions that give a particular privilege, it is a privilege, 
to change the rules and have different rules apply to different people. I really struggle with that. And I myself have, have in the past, you all may remember, suggested that we should revisit this policy. I still think that's true. And that's when we should change it, not individually in an individual area. But I guess I, when I asked the question, I thought it's not a policy. It's just something that the city commission has done each time that it's been brought before it. But it's not actually a policy. It's included in that overlay, right? No. That's the right, way it's- Catherine, is it in the overlay? No, it's not spelled out in the overlay. So the overlay district specifically says the intent is to limit uses that would cause a detrimental effect to the district or the surrounding neighborhood. That's the intent of the district. While it does not identify specific uses, over time, the conditional zoning that has been applied has listed out, and we can pull that list up. There's more than just alcohol sales on that list. Things like kennels and heavy um, industrial uses, um, drive-throughs, um, those type of things are all prohibited. Bars and lounges would be prohibited. That would be a prohibited use but for the conditions that have been applied. So the condition have been applied to mitigate any detrimental effects, which is what the guidelines intend to do. And the mitigation methods are, you can do conditional zoning, you can do an SUP, because an SUP is something that you can add additional things that would help mitigate. For instance, you can dictate hours of operation. You can ask for provided additional screening. Um, those type of things can be outlined in an SUP process. And that is geared towards mitigating detrimental effects to neighboring properties, which is what the guidelines intent is. Um, so because bar and lounge has been a prohibited use, but for those conditions, where eating and drinking establishments can occur there in a manner that is compatible with the district and the neighborhood, thus the alcohol limitation sales. That's where it's coming from. Yeah, but to be clear, the overlay district does not say you can't have bars in restaurants. That was a, yes, that that, that, that was an interpretation of the of that by city commissions in the past. When you compare that to the downtown overlay district, the downtown overlay district actually says you have this this limitation of of alcohol. So the downtown district has a policy that says you have a forty five percent rule. That's in policy. Okay. That's not the policy in this district. The policy is: Do we find it detrimental to the neighborhood? And it's been brought before four or five city commissions, and they've they've added those prohibitions each of those times, but it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily in the policy. The policy says we want it not to be detrimental to the neighborhood. So then that still speaks to the consistency of the conditional zoning yeah. as it's been applied so far. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, but but if, if, someone, if someone came to us in downtown and asked us to do this, we would have to change the policy right. before we could grant it. Here, we don't have to change the policy. Here, we just have to find that it's not detrimental. Randy, I see you. Um, I just want to point out, it's, it's actually by ordinance, it's, it's a law. 
in the city, that downtown CD district to be a licensed premises. So it goes a little bit beyond just policy. We have to change the ordinance, which we did a couple months ago to make it 45% food sales and 55% other things. Previously, you had to have no more than 45% alcohol sales and it had to be 55% food sales. So we did make a change to that law uh, a couple months ago, six months ago, nine months ago. And anyway, it is by ordinance. So it's, it's a little more than a policy. And it's, I don't know that it's in the downtown design guidelines, but it's actually within the CD zoning district. And that is a, a, a requirement within the land development code. And, and that ordinance doesn't apply yeah. to 8th and Penn. No, no. No, it did not. I, I know at some point in time, previously when uh, when Bon Bon came through, I know that that was applied to that as kind of an ameliorative deal to allow Bon Bon to sell, you know, and, and be a restaurant that sold alcohol. There was great concern whether that was going to just become a bar or lounge in the neighborhood, and there was some compromise. And that 45% rule was was just basically lifted from what was the law in downtown and applied to Bon Bon. I think it's been applied to other properties within the 8th and Penn District. So again, I, I mean, I, I just want to be fair. I don't think it's a, it's, the request is not something that would be, that's not allowable. It would be different. It would not be consistent, but it would, it is allowable. Um, well, the other thing that's still allowable is to have a restaurant and a bar. We're not taking that off yeah, the no. table for them. They can do whatever oh, they want. Agree. Right. I think I'm just putting it together, the two, the two context pieces together, and I'm not under, I, I just don't know what this, I know it's unique, but I, what is the anchor? What is anchoring this property? And I, and, and if, if Mr. Kirschnick's here and what, I know you went through it, but help me understand. I, I, I hear your vision. I hear all the things, but right. what, what is this? <laughs> what yeah. are you wanting for this to be? Yeah. Do, do you mind if I go through them one more time? Um, Succinctly, yeah. Yep, I, I will be succinct. Um, uh, it's a, Think about it like an eight-spoke wheel. It's not a restaurant. It's not a bar. It's not bar games. It's not a farmer's market. And by the way, I did want to clarify, I have offered the farmer's market to donate the space. Sophie Tate and I have talked multiple times, just for the record, they have not accepted that offer yet. But, you know, instead of just saying, hey, let's have a, you know, a, a restaurant bar with a big outdoor beer garden, we wanted it to be more. We wanted to involve, you know, the dog friendly nature, the arts, the culture, get the building listed on the national registry. So. I'm not trying to dodge your your question, but it's it's quite frankly all of the above. And you know, some of some of that the hang up here is, well, gosh, why is the alcohol so important? The alcohol is so important because if I'm if this outdoor space is as successful as I think it will be, people are gonna buy beer. You know, there's gonna be a lot of times where somebody walks up to this, you know, eight-spoke wheel, you know, and plays bocce ball and might not eat a taco. Um, and again, that's where the percentages are very, very concerning to these operators that we're talking to. Um, the other pieces too is that, you know, and, and by the way, if you all recall, I'm the one that did Bon Bon. I'm the one that came before this body. And the reason that I was fine accepting the 4555 is because it was just such a different concept. It doesn't have a 2.1 acre 
outdoor space. And, you know, if you wanted to go and listen to music, I mean, probably going to have, you know, a little larger uh, alcohol ticket than a, than a food ticket, or at least a lot of people would. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the, the whole, the whole point of this is just making sure that, you know, it doesn't get to a point where we do have to jump through loopholes uh, or charge people at the door and frankly not get shut down by the government if we're at, you know, 55%. But at this moment in time, you know, this type of concept, you know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And I've, I might've actually been to the same place in St. Louis that you're talking about, but that if over in the it, grove, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it's just, way more multifaceted than that. Um, and so I don't, I, I'll be honest, I don't have a clue, you know, how much alcohol is going to be sold. I might be fine at 45%, you know, I might need more than 60%. I don't have a clue, but there's no way that anybody would invest over $2 million into an old uh, blighted Quonset hut building just to figure out that to no fault of his or her own, that the government can shut you down unless you do stuff that you don't want to do, such as, you know, charging for, you know, the, the beanbag court, which some places do. We just don't want to do that. We want this to be simple and a place that people can can come and go. And obviously nobody would be willing to, to make an investment or sign up for something that they think they're going to be out of compliance day one and have the local government shut them down. And unlike Bon Bon, for those that might recall that, um, you know, they were they i believe and randy please correct me but i believe if we didn't hit the 45 55 at the time that i had two years to get back into compliance this is not a deal that you could get back into compliance if this thing you know produces 52 percent alcohol sales in the first two or three years the way to get into compliance is uh the last week of each quarter say hey sorry we're not serving beer today <laughs> you know and at which point I'm not going back to that place, you know, it'd frustrate the patrons and it'd frustrate the staff. And so, um, you know, we're, we're also, you know, talking about an unfair playing field here. There's a lot of places that we're grandfathered in, um, you know, so we're, we're, we're wanting to, uh, we're wanting to sign up for something that we believe we can achieve. And that's where I came up with the 60, 40, and again, in, in all honesty, I don't know if it's going to be 40% alcohol or 65%. I too don't want a bar or a lounge down there in the area, which is why I'm not asking for a waiver, which I could ask for in a number of different ways. I want there to be guaranteed um, revenue that does not come from the sale of alcohol just because of polar lofts, Penn Street lofts, and all of the other assets that I'm involved with in the area. So I, I hope that answers your question. I mean, it, it does a little bit. I think for me, you know, this is this is not my project but just thinking of the possibilities of what that space could be based on the uniqueness that you you talk about whether it's not whether it is you know renting parking spots or renting it out for a community group to host an event there um having food available so that you create a space for a population here in our community that maybe he's never been over an eighth and pen and it gives them the opportunity to expand their wherewithal and knowledge of their community. Um, you know, I see that as they're not workarounds, but they're the additional things that could be done. But again, this is not my project. Um, and I've been to similar places like you've talked, like you've spoken to in many different communities in different states. 
And again, I've been to some that are not anchored by alcohol, some that are, and it speaks to the population or the crowd, the, the, the atmosphere of what you want there. So um, you know, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. I don't know how much you sold me on it, but I, I mean, for me, it goes back to, I, I think you're, you're, you're over, you're underestimating yourself. Um, but that's just my, my take on it. So if, even though I may have opinions about how this may or may not look as a business model is really not relevant. Um, What's relevant is that we have a consistent application of a policy um, and it supports continuing to apply it consistently to this area. And I, I am disinclined to do something which creates an exception. So if this were to, if we were to change the ratios, um, how would it apply to others in the area that have been following that 45-55 rule? Randy? It would have no effect on those properties. They would have to come in and, and rezone if they wanted to take advantage of, 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 of a different ratio. And if the city commission was so inclined and the planning commission was so inclined, that could be done. But it, it would take a rezoning of those particular properties. This would have no application on any other property within the district. So does it seem like that would um, create a competitive edge for Tony's property if um, he were allowed to have that different ratio, whereas the Lawrence Brew Company down the streets following the old one, um, it seems like there's a competitive edge there that is that make it equal playing ground, so to speak. Um, I think that warrants a conversation, the ratio as a whole. I think it does. It was developed 20, what, 20, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And, and um, times were different, obviously. And I think it wouldn't be a bad conversation to have um, to see if that still applies and why we did it, really, truly why we did it in the first place, where those numbers came from, to have a better understanding and, and, and what's going on out there today with communities as to if they've got ratios out there. Take a closer look at that. And Randy, to follow up on what your line of suggestion, if let's say we do public engagement, we talk to all the stakeholders, we do all the things that our um, strategic plan asks us to do when we're trying to make a decision in the community that reaches all of our goals, and we got rid of it. In downtown, we got rid of the, any of the percentage, we just got rid of it. No one would have to rezone. It, it would just cease to apply to people. Do you think that would be accurate? Is that an action we could take sometime in the future? That would. If if we change the law downtown, there would no, no there would have to there would not have to be any zoning change. It would just be a, a code change. It would no longer apply to the district within CDs. Now, properties that specifically had conditional zoning that restricted what the percentage was or put a ratio or, or did that type of deal, they would have to rezone. They would have to get a, a new zoning and rezone the property and, and to remove that condition. And these are all things, this is Commissioner Sellers, these are all things that could be looked into now that we've secured a consultant that's gonna look at our codes, correct? 
I assume that that will be part of the process of of look, re -look, of revisiting the land development code, um, w whether or not they recommend a change or or recommend leaving it the same or changing the ratio. I, I do not know what the recommendation well, that's far. would be, but it will be, be subject to the change because the CD district that has the restriction is part of the land development code, and that's what's going to be looked at by the consultants. I saw Jeff turn his camera on. Maybe he has a comment there. Jeff Craig playing Golden Service. Commissioner Sellers, you're, you're right, exactly that point to, you know, having somebody in the development code look at that and see is that correct or what that is. I think it is probably a broader community discussion to be had as, as part of that revision and updating process. Well, as I said, I, you know, I, I would be in favor of obviously something like that, and that's going to apparently happen um, for this uh, specific um, project. Um, I'm concerned about having apply here, changing those ratios when the uh, other businesses in the area are held to the, the higher standard. But that doesn't mean I, I, I'm open to a discussion about overall these ratios. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I, I would obviously agree with Vice Mayor Larson on that. Um, I, uh, alluding to my previous question of Jeff and Catherine, I just wanted to know the background of it and why we're adhering to, um, ratios that, uh, nobody really knows where they came from. Um, but that is a grander discussion, uh, as the Mayor Shipley also said, um, and, uh, that, uh, looks like we're going to be able to revisit with our new um, development code um, review. So, um, but yeah, in this particular situation, um, uh, it's, I, I, I do feel a bit of hesitation with um, uh, changing it uh, for this particular entity, uh, given the other, the other ones in the area that are playing by uh, newer rules uh, that have been implemented um, uh, regarding the 55% gross receipt, so. Testing the limits of you guys' thought process here. If this was an SUP that required certain things, like you have to have outside games, only so many square feet, hours of operation, so it wasn't directly competitive to something well, it's just you could be sold tomorrow to somebody else to do something completely different with it. Would that make a difference? Would you still think you'd want the, in any SUP, you'd want the same percentage absent a larger conversation? Boy, I think I need a lot more information to. Maybe I'd be open to discussion. Definitely. Yeah. I'd keep well, it the same. Are a lot more flexible, though, aren't they? What? Aren't SUPs a lot more flexible in a lot of ways? Like they, they can be more flexible. They also can be more stringent. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they can be what depends what 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 conditions you put in there. I mean, one can. That's I guess what I was asking is, you have an SUP, you can have conditions right. like you have to close at eleven thirty. Right. But if condition, if 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 your thought would be, you know, no matter what the SUP is, condition one would be forty five percent. And then we'd add conditions onto that. Well, then that yeah. isn't much of a yeah. conversation well, point. But that actually brings up something because I had, and maybe I, I'm opening a worm can, I don't want to, but I mean, if you close at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, the behaviors that neighborhoods are trying to mitigate 
are less likely. I know, I just watched it yesterday and let me tell you something. If you give people free flow and alcohol until two in the morning, they will take advantage of it. So, I mean, there in the SUP process, there might be a, okay, fine, you can have you can have 60%, you close at nine or 10. Okay, that, that takes away the behaviors that are often the most um, damaging. I mean, I think, I mean, my biggest concern about this is that that somehow, you know, I think Shlinsky's made this point that, I mean, Tony, I, I love your idea. I think I agree that it works, you know, but if you decide to leave Lawrence or whatever, and then you sell it to somebody else, they might not have that same idea and they might build another building and do 60% or something and we'd be in a different position. I do think an SUP gives us more limitations, you know, that says if you leave as the operator or the new operator has some similar characteristics, like so much outdoor space has to remain. You can only have a building so big. You can do those things in an SUP that you can't do in a in a rezoning. But I mean, I, I'm intrigued by your idea. I think it's a great idea. I think it, it would be a, a net benefit to the community. And uh, I mean, it sounds like there's some ways we could still talk about it, but that's, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate, I think the national sellers, the, the, the concept that you're putting forward, I think would be a net benefit. Um, and so that's kind of where I, I'm at. Are you proposing that SUP? Well, we can't, he can't do that. that. He yeah, can't do that. That's not what's in front of us. Well, then, am I hearing a motion? I'll make a motion. Approve the request to rezone Z-21-00141, approximately 2.1 acres from IGUC, General Industrial with Conser Conservation Overlay District, to CSUC, Commercial Strip with Conservation Overlay District, with conditions located at 16, 620 East 8th Street, based on the findings presented in the staff report and adopt on first reading ordinance number 9908. Second. But before we vote, I will, you second? I, I will remove my, I can retract my second. But I can second, you, you can, can have second, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what are you we talking still about? Talk still have discussion. Sorry. <laughs> I just want to say, I, I'll vote yes to this because I want it, I want the rezoning to happen, but I'm not necessarily voting yes because I disagreed that there couldn't be something different here. <laughs> so I'm going to vote yes for this because I think we wanted rezoned. But understand, I'm I'm open to some other discussions. So. Uh, so I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Okay, great. Um, five sorry, five zero. Sure, I apologize. That's on me. Thank you. Um, it's weird being back in person. You forget. You forget. Um, our next item is to provide feedback on sidewalk improvement program. <clears throat> Jake is ready. Yep, uh, I am ready if you're ready for me, Mayor. Well, there he is. I, uh, good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager uh, with MSO, and I'm here to, tonight to present on the Sidewalk Improvement Program. Um, 
I've got some uh, slides prepared that'll offer some background information, um, some some other information about the program's implementation and changing through the different phases we've had um, in the hopes really to facilitate the conversation and discussion of, of any questions you guys might have. Um, so um, with that, I'm just going to jump right into sharing and, and running through these slides. All right, so um, really uh, th this, the genesis of this program began with the Pedestrian Bicycle Issues Task Force recommendation back in 2016. Um, that, that recommendation really was to establish um, an equitable and practical repair program to fix hazards by 2030. Um, between 2017 and 2019, the staff worked with the City Commission to adopt a policy to implement that program. 2019 brought about the first phase of the program, uh, which was the sidewalk hazard mitigation program. Um, this was really a pilot program, and, and, and the intent really was to learn from the problems found in the first year of the program um, and make appropriate changes in successive years uh, to better the program. And really, that's been a recurring theme as it's evolved year over year. Um, it did begin um, focused on areas, geographical areas to be specific. Um, it began with um, eight geographical areas with the intent to inspect and repair um, one of those areas each year. Um, however, with the contract, um, the city contractor was made to extend its, its price to the property owners, and that really became burdensome um, to all involved because property owners um, were contracting separately with the city's contractor who was making repairs and staff was kind of pursuing payment of those invoices between um, the contractor and the, the property owners for those, again, those individual bills. And uh, this is just a, a brief look at the, the implementation, or pardon me, the 2019 area, again, the pilot program that I spoke of. Uh, newer infrastructure there in the northwest corner of town, again, to kind of to learn our lesson as we move forward with the program. Uh, 2020, of course, brought about the second phase of the program. Uh, really, a rebranding is the sidewalk improvement program. It was still area focused. Um, and the, the big change here is that um, we um, offered property owners a chance to repair and then um, put all the repairs into one big construction contract, made repairs, and then invoiced property owners afterwards. And this change really increased the overall efficiency uh, by placing the work management on city staff instead of uh, property owners and the contractor. And uh, this slide shows the 2020 area. It was in the southeast area of town. Um, it was actually about half of one of those geographical zones I alluded to earlier. There were um, some concerns that the budget we had uh, might not make all the repairs. So um, that's why we ended up a little bit smaller than originally planned. Moving forward into 2021 brought about the third phase of the sidewalk improvement program. And uh, the big change here was um, um, moving from geographical zones of inspection and repair to priority pedestrian routes. And that was brought about um, through the data-driven process, which is a, a process of the Multimodal Transportation Commission um, that was uh, a really uh, a process uh, uh, headed by our MPO. Um, it, it also included an equity lens um, adding an additional weighting for transportation disadvantaged populations. Um, the inspections of, of the 2021 program um, really brought about a new understanding as well, because we, we got into some areas where our sidewalks um, were found to be in such disrepair that they uh, really, we, we couldn't repair them. They, we really needed to take a look at completely replacing those sidewalks from block in to block in. So, 
Um, that inspection kind of revealed um, sidewalk segments into two project categories. Again, one being the repair project, um, spot repairs through the sidewalk improvement program. And the second category being the, the replacement um, sidewalk segments that we would kind of move out of the sidewalk program and address separately. This slide is showing our 2021 um, priority pedestrian routes that were inspected. Um, this project is actually currently under construction and scheduled to be completed um, this May. And uh, now we are looking at the fourth phase of the program, which are the routes that are currently being inspected for 2022. And, and hopefully we'll have that information collected um, within the month. This next slide is really gonna bring it all together um, the, from the previous graphics I've displayed, showing all the sidewalks, sidewalks that have been inspected to date with the program. And uh, just for some uh, scope of performance metrics, the, the line segments in red you're seeing there represent again, the, the sidewalks we inspected to date, and they're about 41% of the city's sidewalks. Um, and the repairs that have been completed within 2019, 2020 and 2021 um, represent about 6.4 miles of sidewalks. Um, so I've, I've given you a little um, history and background and, and kind of a, a, an overview of how the program's changed over the years, but I also wanted to touch on the objectives of the program, which has always been to assist property owners in repairing tripping hazards, uh, which does align with the city's strategic plan. Now, the city provides the assistance to property owners in different ways, one being notification, um, another being financial assistance. Um, the city offers offer also the benefit through project management, and lastly, in cost savings and cost partnering. Uh, with cost savings, I'm really referring to the economies of scale that by gathering all these repairs together um, in one big contract, we're able to offer quite a discount to um, property owners. And when I talk about cost partnering, I'm referring to kind of the bid items in the contract that the property owners are not paying for. So these are items that just the city pays for, such as mobilization, traffic control, um, removals of the existing sidewalk, uh, grading and seating. And I also wanted to touch on um, how the sidewalk improvement program touches other pieces of work that the city's um, um, working on, such as the ADA transition plan for the public rights of way. Um, part of the, any ADA transition plan is to address tripping hazards until ADA accessibility can be achieved and is really considered the, the first step in the process to eliminate barriers to access and improve safety. And I believe our, our ADA compliance administrator, who is, uh, I believe, still in the meeting, uh, spoke about this in his presentation to the commission here a month or so ago. Another piece of work that this coincides with is the Lawrence Pedestrian Plan that I believe Melinda mentioned during her um, presentation on Connected City. Um, that plan points to the need to continue the program, the sidewalk improvement program that is, until all sidewalks in the city are inspected and repaired. And then the, the last uh, plan I've got on here um, that we coordinate with is a non-motorized projects prioritization policy. Uh, this is a policy of our Multimodal Transportation Commission, um, and it's uh, currently being revised um, to address prioritizing those replacement sidewalk segments that we're gonna take out of the sidewalk improvement project. Um, touching on program scope, now I, I've always said we really don't know that the size of the problem until we get our inspections done, but however, um, what we did um, hear about LIDAR earlier in the meeting, and we do have some data on that that gives us a clue to what we have left ahead of us. 
Um, that data is showing us that out of the sidewalks that have left to be inspected, 51% of those roughly are gonna need repairs. If we put a cost to that, we're looking at a $5.4 million estimate. 20% um, of those remaining sidewalks are gonna need replacement. Um, pardon 20% are gonna need replacement and 29% there weren't any issues detected. Um, we're still not considering bricks at this point because that policy work has not been completed. Um, and then again, just looking at the current funding we've got in the program of $675,000 per year, it's going to take about eight years to complete um, that $5.4 million um, estimate that's shown there. Um, I also was going to touch briefly on liability. Um, so um, talking with legal, uh, historically litigation and liability has been minimal. There has been uh, um, a few uh, lawsuits brought against the city in the past in regards to sidewalks, but those cases have been dismissed uh, because of the, the state statute and the city ordinance um, uh, bringing responsibility of that sidewalk to the abutting property owner. If a uh, and that again, those are the current program. If an alternate um, program were to be considered, uh, we would uh, uh, move away from that with a home rule ordinance. Uh, and we want to consider variable increases to, to litigation and liability. And I'm sure that may, may come into discussion later in more depth. And I've got one more slide after this one. This one's just asking some really big picture questions. What changes are you looking to consider and, and what really would you like more information on? Um, and before I turn it uh, back over to the commission to discuss those big picture items, I did want to take a look at process. So looking ahead, uh, you know, it's my intent to gather feedback from tonight's meeting, do any research analysis that's necessary, uh, prepare options and recommendations as necessary, and then uh, bring that back to the city commission for consideration. Um, I, I, gone through uh, all my prepared remarks now, so I'm, I'm happy to uh, provide any further information or, or questions as you go through the discussion. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you so much. Um, any questions for Jake so far? Hey, Jake, I want to be clear that the 5.4 million was to repair the 51%. The There's no number associated with that 20% not to have to be replaced, right? Yeah, no number that we vetted. Yes, that is correct. The 5.4 was for just the repair, the spot repair of those 51%. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, I had a couple. Um, so if I remember correctly, we have about 63 miles of sidewalk. Is that correct? Somewhere in that neighborhood? But sidewalk and trails, I guess. Yeah, Jake Baldwin, MSO, uh, city-owned sidewalks and trails. I think that's the number that I've, I've got recently from our asset management group. Um, that I, I can't confirm that at this time. Okay. How many miles of sidewalks have been repaired to date in this program? So we've repaired 7.1 miles of sidewalk with the, the first three years of the program. Okay. So how much uh, have, have the homeowners paid and that 5.4 million versus, or no, I'm not, so 2 million, I'm sorry, 2 million versus the city's, what the city has paid. Sure, uh, and I'm gonna answer, I'm sorry, Jake Baldwin, MSO, I'm gonna answer that a little bit differently. Um, I'm gonna say that private property has been responsible for 4.5 out of those 7.1 miles of sidewalk and the city's been the remaining 2.5. The costs are different again, because the city is partnering on a lot of those costs and paying for other things in the contract. So what's the, what's the cost numbers difference between what the city's paid versus homeowners? 
Sure. So Jake Bolden, MSO Private Property, has been um, responsible for about $612,000 for the first three years of the program. And so the city's got that remainder of $1.4 million of the total cost. Now, granted, we, we've repaired a lot of sidewalk ramps as part of this program. So that's kind of buffered the city's piece of the number. Okay. Um, could you explain to me what the current rule is for that dictates whether or not the city pays for sidewalk repair versus the adjacent homeowner? Uh, sure, Jake Baldwin, MSO. Um, essentially, um, we default first to who owns the adjacent property. Um, if it's the city, the city is going to take care of it. It's the property owner. The property owner will take care of it. However, there are some caveats, and those caveats are if that sidewalk hazard is going to be related to any city infrastructure. So we've heard about street trees before, manholes, um, maybe issues with water lines or sewer lines. And then the additional caveat is that the city also maintains any sidewalk shared use path eight feet and greater in width. So um, you talked about the, the shared use path on Castle or Clinton Parkway, the Lawrence Loop Trail, those for example. So um, so something like 23rd Street, the sidewalks on 23rd Street, do the businesses pay for those or is that city? Jake Baldwin, MSO, if those are less than eight feet, then the, the property owner is gonna pay for those, the business would. Okay. Um, I think that's it for right now. I guess a follow-up question, if you have it, Jake, we've repaired whatever that is, 7.3 miles. Was that, um, do we know how many miles of sidewalk we looked at and didn't have to be repaired? Jake Baldwin, MSO, yes. So um, those first three years of the program, we inspected 183 miles of sidewalk approximately. So 7.1 out of the 183 required repairs. Wow. Thank you. Um, Jake, um, I'm concerned that your estimate for the amount the homeowners have paid is an underestimate. Did you keep track of who did the their um, repairs on their own and didn't report to you what they paid for it? Jake Baldwin, MSO, no, that's a very good point, Mayor. We, we have not been able to keep track of, of what um, homeowners who've done self-repair, what those costs are. I've only got the numbers from our contract and the city's contractor. And I want to go back to a question that uh, Vice Mayor Larson asked you about the cost of whether businesses pay, like on 23rd Street. You say in your memo, and I'm well aware, that if it's part of a complete streets project, let's say 19th Street, and that's not a multi-use path, even if it is a multi-use path, the owner of the home or the abutting property has not sent a bill for that sidewalk. It's part of the complete streets project. Is that correct? Uh, Jake Baldwin, MSO, I believe you're referring to like a complete street reconstruction project. Yes. Yes. In those instances, the, the property owners don't bear any responsibility for the cost of that sidewalk. And how often are complete street projects of that magnitude smaller road projects, are they inevitably larger collector streets like 19th Street, 23rd Street, Castle Street? I'm sorry, Mayor, what was the question? So the complete streets that I've seen repaired recently or even in the last five years have all been larger projects like Castle, complete street project, 19th Street, complete street project. These are collectors or arterials. Is that a fair characterization of what generally falls, uh, gets done as a complete street project or larger streets? 
I believe that, uh, sorry, Jake Baldwin, MSO, I believe that all our projects uh, try to follow that complete streets policy. Um, but yeah, the, the larger reconstructions have more ability to, to you know, um, follow more of the aspects of the policy. So making sure I understand um, Mayor Shipley's first question, the 7.3 miles repaired, those are just 7.3 miles that we paid for, that, that went through our contractor. Jake Baldwin, MSO, yes, that is correct. That went through the city's contractors over three separate years and three separate contracts. Okay, so if someone repaired their own sidewalk, that wouldn't be in there. Got it, okay. Um, I have another question for you, Jake. Um, Except for the first year, have you been forced to decrease the size of the area every year due to the budget? Jake Baldwin, MSO. Um, no, I wouldn't say so. We definitely did in 2020 um, when we were kind of changing gears on how we approached everything, but we kind of ramped up in 2021 to bite off a bigger piece. And a lot of that is, is I think our assumption in 2020 wasn't quite right. And we ended up with having some budget carryover. And so we, we rolled that budget over into the 2021 project and were able to kind of um, inflate that project. Um, help me out. I, my recollection was the second year they, they cut the section in half before they even tried to make the budget. Um, maybe Brandon's around. He might remember that. Yes, that is no. correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Jake, this is Commissioner Sellers. Just real quick on the section um, about financial assistance. Do you have any do you have any data that says how of the residential sidewalks that were repaired? How many qualified or applied for financial assistance? Jake Baldwin, MSO. Um, I'm trying to hunt down. I, I know I looked into that number prior to the meeting. I want to say that we, we had roughly 30 to 40 applications between the financial assistance and cost share applications just in the 2021 program. And I believe that amounted to between 20 and $30,000 worth of assistance. But I don't have the information in, in front of me for the, the remaining years of the program. Um, Jake, you didn't have any information this time about what other cities do. We've talked about it a lot. And every time I discover a new city that's doing their own um, financing, the maintenance of sidewalks and not having liability issues because the homeowner is still uh, ultimately responsible. Um, in fact, I learned three other towns in Kansas that do it quite easily. And the again, the liability issue is not um, a problem. Um, did you do any research on what other communities are doing in Kansas? Um, or did anyone call their attorneys and find out if they're getting sued in inordinate numbers? Uh, Jake Baldwin, MSO. No, I haven't updated the research on that topic, Mayor. I think the last time we, we visited was in 2021, February of 2021, and we kind of provided a summary of what neighboring communities have done. So I don't know if that's changed since last year. Oh, um, can the the numbers? Sorry, Jake. The the esti cost estimates have dropped dramatically since the very first time they ever had this conversation. Can you account for that dramatic drop? In uh, other than better lidar information, 
Jake Baldwin, MSO, I, I don't recall what the, the previous estimates we put in front of the commission are at this point, so I couldn't comment on, on what the reasons why that would be. Any other questions? Nope. You, uh, I think you asked one of the ones I was thinking about, the uh, comparable cities and, and the liability issue. So, um, well, I was kind of interested interested in that as well. So luckily, we ran into all kinds of Kansas cities when we were in D.C., and um, every one of them I spoke to said that um, they pay for the maintenance of sidewalks, with the exception of Wichita. And they don't, they just simply budget it this way and and simply take care of it when a homeowner needs it to be taken care of. And again, I think my point here is that, you know, I live on Castle. The city paid for my my sidewalk. I didn't get a bill. And if someone trips on it, the city's not going to get paid just because they paid for that um, repair. That doesn't create the liability. Being responsible for the maintenance, paying for the maintenance, or even doing the maintenance doesn't create the liability. Correct. And none of those cities, though, also took ownership of them, right? They just paid. Right, exactly, exactly my point. That's the difference. So yeah, yeah taking responsibility for the maintenance and yeah. and taking, um, go ahead, Randy, please. Yes, um, that it's not exactly true. If we took over maintenance and took over control over it, over a sidewalk, we'd have the same liability that we have for streets. It would be the same situation where if we had notice of a defect, and it was our obligation to maintain it and we did not fix it, then the city would have liability. We've always had that liability for streets and that would be the same liability we would have, that we would have for sidewalks as well. There has to be a notice and then a failure of the city to act and then somebody's hurt and then, then we'd have liability. Under the current sidewalk laws, we don't have any liability whatsoever then what makes it possible for other cities to do that and not encounter the same liability? The, the, the cities can do that, definitely. And they would bear the same liability that they have for streets. And they're maintaining the sidewalks, you know, perhaps through a budget and other things like that. I mean, we don't get sued very often for street defects. We probably, if we were maintaining the sidewalks, wouldn't get sued very often for sidewalks. Now, it might be because of more pedestrian things and there might be some things that we'd have to get rid of and we'd have, they'd have to have notice. But the situation is we'd also have to maintain the sidewalks and have a budget for doing that. And it'd be somewhat similar to running the streets. But the liability for sidewalks is no different than what they are for streets. And we are we do streets already. Right. And I think some of those cities do it a little differently, like they set aside a million dollars a year. And if you want money to repair your sidewalk, you can apply for it. It's still your job to to apply for it. And the city might send you a notice that says, hey, you should apply to get the money to fix your sidewalk. Mm -hmm. But they never actually say we're maintaining it. They just say we have a pot of money. And then some of them do like do that, but it's 50 percent or 75 percent. Right. But again, which is still slightly different than saying right. we are maintaining yeah, it right. and we are going to pay for it. <laughs> it's there's a nuance there, a little bit of a nuance there. But yeah. But again, I, I mean, I agree with you. Those ways to do it that lessen any liability chances. And certainly many places pay for a lot more of it than 0%. <laughs> uh, 
So Mayor, like on your street castle, your sidewalk, are you responsible for the future maintenance of that right now? Yeah, and that's been a discussion we've had as well. But um, in spite of the fact that um, my recollection was several commissioners were interested in having a discussion about taking responsibility for what we already fixed, like the first section, or if we did 23rd Street, 19th Street, then we would add that to the list and, you know, they could then apply for that money or start a different program, something like that, or any of the other things we talk about, insurance or something like that, where there's a um, at least some kind of cost added, mm-hmm. some kind of, instead of just completely taking it out of the whatever, either our infrastructure or our general fund, it would have, you know, if it's a program like that, you're, you're adding money into the system that wasn't there before, you're getting something. So if we were to, to take over the, the sidewalks, um, would that also entail us taking over snow removal? Because that's no, part of Reese? No, and no one else who does that has made that jump. No one who, Lenexa, Overland Park, uh, Prairie Village, none take over this, the scooping of the sidewalk. And we add, we add sidewalk that we're responsible for scooping all the time every time we add something to the loop. And every time oh, yeah. we add a, a, a multi-use path. Right, that's the eight foot wide mm-hmm. scenario. Yeah. And you said Overland Park and Lenexa? Or- we, knew, for, we knew about Lenexa for a long time. I didn't mm-hmm. discover Overland Park till we had this conversation last year. And I didn't know about Prairie Village, but they're a lot smaller than we are. So maybe not a fair comparison. Who else did I talk to? Just real quick, do we hmm. open public comment? Yeah. Well, I just want to make sure we don't have any questions. Yeah, before we have questions. Yeah, then come back for comments. Commissioner <laughs> Sellers? No. I mean, I don't have any questions. You don't comments, have yes, but no questions. No questions? No. Okay. Um, is there any public comment on this item? Hi, this is Chris Flowers. Um, I'm kind of, at first, I was for the city taking over sidewalks, but I'm kind of... I'm undecided right now because I'm just, where's the money going to come from? Like, here's what, if you guys do, if the city does take over sidewalks, I want to know ahead of time where you're going to get the money from. Like, who who should, who's, who's going to get screwed, basically, because we don't have unlimited money. So if we take money to, to put in sidewalks, what, you know, where is that money coming from? Who's going to get screwed? Because here's the thing. I, I can tell you who's going to benefit homeowners. It's not going to be renters. I mean, we're going to be potentially losing access to services. I mean, if we have to start cutting services to make up for sidewalk money, this could be renters losing programs they use so that homeowners can get, I mean, I'm not saying it's unfair or fair, but I mean, homeowners are gonna benefit more from this. And I think renters, you know, they're probably a lot poorer. I mean, maybe not a lot poorer, but they're probably poorer than homeowners are. I mean, so I, I do want to know where the money is going to come from and who should who should be getting screwed over and who's not going to be getting screwed over. And also, here's something. You, we're talking about the fairness of, of sidewalks. You know, some sidewalks, some houses have them and some don't. But also, but what about like trees? Doesn't the city um, make 
different homes have like trees. But I think that was a thing at one of these recent meetings was like trees that are by the road or something and that you have to have so many. But if that's true, I mean, why is it fair that we're making homeowners spend money on trees that all like me as a renter, I'm benefiting from the clean air, you know? So, I mean, if you take some of that logic, it, you could say, well, the, the, the trees are providing clean air, you know? And so we all benefit from that. But I mean, the sidewalks are providing transportation for everyone. And so we all benefit from that. And I, I don't know, it's just something. And here's another thing about when it comes to snow removal. So we say, well, it's not fair for homeowners to have to pay for sidewalks. Why is it fair for homeowners to have to pay for, for snow removal on their sidewalks? So, I mean, that is something like even if the city takes over for sidewalks, we're saying where this the owners are still going to have to pay to have that snow removed. So that's just some thoughts I was having. Thank you. Is there any public comment on the Zoom? Uh, there's no comments, Mayor. Okay, thanks. Um, let's bring it back. Um, I did want to say, Chris, you're right about the street trees. Of the street trees, I think maybe Jake mentioned this. If it damages the sidewalk, then that's a, a city response or a manhole cover or something like that. Also, it's a city responsibility. Um, I would push back against it benefiting homeowners. Sidewalks absolutely do not add value to your house, especially when people know they're responsible for it. Um, but who would suffer is um, renters. When your landlord gets a bill for $1,000 for a sidewalk, he passes that cost on to the renter. And as far as where money can come from, we have an infrastructure sales tax. And so the argument we've always had, and we, by the way, we do pay for sidewalks out of our infrastructure money. We do it all the time. Sure. We've done it every month for the last year. So um, that money is available. It's how we prioritize it. So what programs would potentially be cut or cut back or projects not done? if we were to pay for that with the current infrastructure money. So then why would that be different than how we judge our CIP items now, right? Every year we yeah, you prioritize, prioritize them. But you're still adding a service that was not available for. Yeah, and which is inequitable, clearly in several different ways by the fact that I can get a free sidewalk and someone else can't. I mean, the original premise of this, when you go back to the uh, memo from the, um, Pedestrian Bicycle Issues Task Force was very specifically to um, get that pedestrian or to get the infrastructure sales tax and to, um, let's see, what do they say? They wrote them, bring, bring sidewalks into compliance by 2030. Oh, no, it says something else more specific, so equitable. Um, and practical, I think is what it says. Yeah, commit to establishing an equitable and practical sidewalk repair program by 2017 that will bring all sidewalks and curb ramps up to code by 2030. Yeah, yeah. 
But to be to be fair, you, I mean, you got your sidewalk on Castle, and actually, I did them on mine too. They they redid the street on my street, um, but I've had rails where they haven't done that. Um, you still have to pay for maintenance long, at this time. You still have to pay for long term maintenance, so that is still a cost to the homeowner. Sure, I have a fifty foot lot, I think, and I got fifty feet of free sidewalk, brand new. <laughs> so now I get the next thirty years. Estimated that those sidewalks should last or 10, 10 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and for a year, they were guaranteed by the, the city or the contractor to come fix them if there was a crack, right? These people who are getting this letter, the people that are going to get this letter in this next <clears throat> section, they don't get that. Lisa, you got a, a sidewalk in front of your house on your residential street? Yeah, yeah. It was done, I don't know, 10 years ago, like quite some time ago. And I don't have sidewalks in my neighborhood. There's no sidewalks on yeah. in my neighborhood. Yeah, small neighborhood, but no sidewalks at all. Well, I am concerned about how it's paid for. Um, that we don't take away from what we have been doing with our CIP. I think we're doing a great job of catching up. We got a ton of catch up to do. Um, it would seem to me to be um, we would need another source of funding where I'm also interested in this was brought up a few years ago with the commission about the idea of treating as we if we treat these like a street and when a street is privately owned in Lawrence um, which we have numerous of them in Lawrence that if that the neighborhood can come and ask the city to take that street over and the city will do that but only after it's come into compliance with current code and then the city would take that over so i know a few years ago we discussed that aspect and the idea that if once the sidewalks have been repaired is to take those over and i'm open to that discussion um and i have been since we first brought it up um but you know i, I still believe that they need to be brought up to code before we do that um that's my thought on that um for that because and, and i do think the program we have now i i personally believe it's very equitable it pays for 100 percent for low income um and that's an area where i would be willing to look at do we need to raise that threshold so more people can fall in that low low income it pays 50 percent for repairs um if you got more than one sidewalk trees it pays for tree issues and utility issues um and it pays for the ada um, compliance issues provides um, obviously very competitive pricing. I've never seen these lower pricings for more than 20 years and that's when I was in an industry doing that type of work. Um, I hadn't seen those type of prices which was surprising. The city manages all aspects of the repair which is huge because they don't have to get a permit, they don't have to hire them, they don't have to schedule it, they don't have to oversee the contractor. So I, I do believe that our current program offers um, an equitable situation um, for for the repair. But those are areas that I would, you know, definitely am willing to further discuss. The trees on the one side, those were guaranteed in the first place. That was already part of the deal. So that wasn't something we gave them. Actually, um, it was added to the program. Yeah. I thought that was originally, and it was always in the first drafts. The city yeah. Response. If the tree damages your sidewalk. Yeah. Well, it was when we first, cover. when we first discussed the program. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was it was added as part of that. That we for sure wanted that as part of that policy. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and we add things to the CIP all the time that didn't exist before. Um, I expect all kinds of things to show up this year that we've never dreamed of. Um, I'm not sure that it 
it means we're ignoring the other things if we prioritize them. And if we continue to tell ourselves that multi-mobility is important to us, but we don't focus on sidewalks being paid for equitably, you know, in addition to the fact that we never actually asked the public their opinion, we never did any public engagement on it ever. We never even did a Lawrence Listens. I've said this before. We did a Lawrence Listen on cats and we did one on dogs, but we never did one on sidewalks. Um, so in addition to literally going out of our way never to find out what homeowners or the public thought about this program, um, it minimizes the importance of sidewalks that we know are important to our multimodal. We learned earlier how important it was um, to our multimodal plan. So the mere fact that we pretend like sidewalks are some afterthought that homeowners deserve to pay for somehow out of their own pocket sends a message that it's not important. And the, the other, I would also make the point, again, the original number that they gave you when you were creating this policy was astronomically higher, impossibly higher, inconceivably higher. So really, I don't know that you had, again, I, I don't know, is Brandon here? 82 million. Yeah, it was. So I don't feel like we, you really had the full information that we, you needed. We had information from the bike ped report that was, I believe it was $10 million. That I, I have a question. Go ahead. I've kind of been waiting a while, but <laughs> I've been enjoying the banter. Um, you know, and I think Randy did a great job of kind of laying the context there uh, around ownership and property. And it's the idea of doing this without the city taking over it, it per se being property of the city. So my my question is, and again, this is something that can come out of further discussion, however we process this engagement, whatnot, but I'm curious to know from those on the dais, do we consider sidewalks to be an extension of a form of, of a road, of a street? Is it, It's a form of transportation infrastructure. Do we believe that? If we believe that, then I feel like that's going to help navigate some of the conversation um, around the benefit and the objective for the sidewalk improvement program and how we can navigate funding around it if we're trying to talk about how to fund it. Because I don't see, I think to, to Randy's point and to what Commissioner Finkeldye brought up and again to your point, Mayor, I think the idea is that the side if the sidewalk belongs to the people or if there's a community that doesn't have sidewalks that want sidewalks those are two different scenarios that we haven't discussed is that part of the improvement project i mean improvement program is that what we want it to be about so i guess i'm trying to understand what our scope is and what that is in relationship to what we identify sidewalks to be if they are a form of transportation infrastructure because we haven't talked about that we've talked around it but i haven't heard anyone up here say transport you know sidewalks are a form of transportation do we believe that it is if it's something that the city owns then does that mean from an equitable standpoint we did we expand this program to be something bigger to provide sidewalks to communities that don't have it that don't have them what does that look like because all of those questions will drive how staff, one, how this program, if we need to expand, amend it, reimagine it, 
scrap it and start all over again because it creates the plan in order for us to find the money to do the thing we want to do we know we want money for sidewalks we know we need money for sidewalks we know we don't it seems like people don't want our community members our homeowners to pay for them so then the question becomes then what are what is what is the framework for that what are the the factors of that so they're part of transportation then we build out from that and i, I we haven't really had that conversation i don't think we're at a disagreement with each other but i don't hear a consensus as far as what we believe the sidewalk pr program to be outside of just who owns it i don't want us to even think about who owns it because even if we had a million dollars each year to set aside that our community members can come to the well and say you know what i own my home i don't have a sidewalk in front of it i can but i can go to the city and i can apply for money through the sidewalk improvement program and i can get sidewalks or my sidewalks are you know i've received a letter from the city i have a you know my sidewalks are a hazard they're telling me I need to come and apply and have someone come out and assess my sidewalks and I can put in a bid and the city's going to bid that out with everyone else who puts in an application to get their sidewalks fixed and that money that that tranche of money is there to do that I, I think these I may be getting ahead of what Jake wants us to do but that's what's processing through my head as far as what do we I think we're talking about the program could be more or it's doing something, but it's not really doing what we want it to do. What is it that we want it to do under the auspice of if we believe that sidewalks are a form of transportation infrastructure? So I think you've actually brought up another inequity by accident, which is that if you have a gap, we're spending all kinds of money from all kinds of funds trying to fill that gap when using CDBG money, especially, I guess, if you're in a low mod area. So you're saying, on one hand, we know this is important for transportation for people in low mod areas. Um, it's important enough to spend this money and sometimes even supplement it with other funds, including the infrastructure money, um, but not for everybody. Well, and, and again, but I'm not sure I agree that it's, I, I think certain sidewalks are important for infrastructure, which is why I like the change we made to priority based infrastructure. In my first house had a sidewalk in front of it, except I was on the, the last house before cul-de-sac, so the sidewalk dead ended on my property. <laughs> and then you had to leave the sidewalk and go into the cul-de-sac. And no one on my cul-de-sac, no one ever, you hardly ever used the sidewalk. Now, my neighborhood that exists now doesn't have any sidewalks. So is it not, it's not an infrastructural, right. necessary for infrastructure to get around my neighborhood. But I think other places, it is part of an important network. So, you know, I guess back to the equity issue, I'm not sure all sidewalks are created equal, you know, and I'm not sure that, you know, some of the sidewalks, you know, that the greater city as a whole would benefit from improving, you know, so I, you know, so I. I agree I with that. Your question, I'm not, I don't think it's, as, to me, it's not. All sidewalks are infrastructure, therefore they all should be treated equally and right. we should pay for it. I, I don't I don't land there. Well, I think that also speaks to just the way that the whole conversation has never been comprehensive, right? So when we're talking about affordable housing, one of the suggestions was, well, please don't force us to put sidewalks on both sides. Hmm. That's a cost. Well, in some cases, I think that would make sense to have sidewalks on both sides. Massachusetts is a huge road. You don't want kids running back and forth. Okay, sidewalks on both sides. You live in a cul-de-sac. 
does that really make sense? Exactly. So our, even our thinking about sidewalks is just not comprehensive at all. Yeah. When someone says it's not equitable, my neighbor across the street doesn't have a sidewalk. Well, do you really want a sidewalk over there and you to pay for it? Do the property tax? Well, no, I don't want you to put one there. I just don't. I mean, so again, I agree with you. It's not a... It's not an easy answer to say every sidewalk is built the same and therefore we should have a policy that treats every sidewalk the same. Yeah, I know some folks who would like to have their sidewalk torn out. They yeah. They very strongly. Yeah. But, you know, I, I just, I do go back to the funding because um, I think it's important for me anyway that, um, that we identified a funding source for it. And um, to me, I liken it like... Um, I, com I compare it to when the state of the feds come to us, to cities and say, hey, you need to follow this new rule. And, but we're not gonna provide you money to do that, to implement that rule, be it water quality, be it whatever. Um, and so by us adding this cost to our budget without any additional revenue, we're essentially doing the same thing that the state and feds do, but we're doing it to ourselves. Yeah, but I think what, I, I think what, I mean, I do, again, assuming you're not treating it all equal, right? I mean, we already have money in our CIP to pay for to pay for certain sidewalks. Right. And if we treated, I mean, I think what the mayor is saying, may I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if, if we treat them like, if we say sidewalks are important, certain sidewalks that are part of our infrastructure are important for transportation purposes, yeah. and therefore... Next year in the CIP, we're going to spend $2 million on it. And yeah, that might mean we don't resurface some road across town because we decided improving our sidewalk infrastructure is more important than, than you know, resurfacing, you know, 18th Street from, you know, Comet to whatever. So I, I think the point is, is not that we're, you know, taking on a complete new unfunded mandate, but to yeah. say sidewalks are important enough that we're going to prioritize them over other projects because they're an important part of our network and part of our, our strategic plan. Yeah, if you're talking about, if you're, if you're talking about building new sidewalks, like say for the school, you know, we've been trying to, to deal with that, the gaps and so forth. I agree. I mean, that's something that the city does and we do. Um, to me, it's the maintenance aspect of that, the long-term maintenance responsibility of that, that concerns me, that we do not have the funding because of state law, because of the way state, I shouldn't say because, but I think it's because state law as well as city says we haven't done that. We haven't paid for that. So we don't have that funding mechanism in place to pay for that long-term maintenance. We have funding mechanisms in place for, you know, creating um, the sidewalks we need to make us safer. I understand that and, and dedicating. I completely agree with that. It's the long-term maintenance that we have never had funding for or because of the way the law is written. I well, are we saying that we don't have it? We do have um, Well, yeah, because we don't have any. our own sidewalks all the time. Well, but I'm talking as a whole for the uh, property owners. That's what but, I'm saying. That piece is what's missing. But we have communities that... Potentially, we know that there are communities that have done that. Have they raised their taxes to do that? Well, I think that's the charge we give Jacob to find out. <laughs> back to, Colorado did not. And that's oh. the program I brought to you guys a year I, or two ago. I think a, a little bit of a sense of germaneness. I think I got us ahead when we were like reimagining what this could be. I didn't want to do that. The, 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 the task at hand was to provide feedback as to, for as the program as it relates to 
funding sidewalk repairs. So I, you know, I think we're back to, it sounds like we want to know what communities, what municipalities are paying for this, paying for sidewalk repairs to homeowners and what that's, what that system looks like within their community. Right. We have some of that from last time, but yeah, yeah we did. We did, there was some data that was collected. Yeah, at that time, I wasn't here. Well. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that was collected. Well, yeah. I would also say, in, in terms of um, unfunded unfunded mandates, which I like that as as a good comment. Sidewalks are an unfunded mandate. You put them in. I don't decide whether you put them in or not. The city decides, and then you don't give me anything to replace it with when thirty years or ten years comes up. So how is that not also an unfunded mandate? I get to pay for it out of my own pocket. Something that is clearly um, a community good being used by all kinds of people, not just myself. Yeah, you mean if we use CDBG money to put a sidewalk in front of your house? Yeah. We just, we just put an unfunded yeah, sidewalk in front Now 30 of years, house. good luck. I mean, haven't we used CDBG money for to repair sidewalks in low-income neighborhoods? Has to be gaps. Has to be gaps. Has to be gaps. Jake? Um, what exactly do you need from us? Oh, I, think that's, <laughs> I think we're supposed to get into them. Okay. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I, mean I, I think Commissioner Sellers is very succinct in, uh, in, in saying that. Um, do you need anything more from us? I should probably rephrase, the, rephrase that. Oh, yeah, we haven't told him anything. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob, I don't, Jake, I don't want to interrupt you real quick, but I, I feel like this conversation parallels great with... Again, we have a strategic plan. We had discussion. The charge was to address housing initiatives and homelessness because that's something that bubbled up and is what the community wants. And we are looking at funding opportunities to leverage resources on many different levels to reach that goal. I would be careful to say that's what the community wants because we we haven't had those conversations. Apparently. Let's start with engagement. Uh, I, well, I, I won't define the term of what community is, but that we'll say community entities. However, you want to hamstring me on defined term of community. What I'm saying is that, again, if the community writ large, however we define community, wants a sidewalk improvement program that is fully funded from the city, then what then we take the step, then we initiate the steps to see, to imagine that process and have those discussions of what that looks like. Engagement. Well, yeah. So is that what you want to do next? But is that what you, engagement? We, we've got a strategic plan. It gives us a pretty handy little roadmap. I don't, I don't see why we wouldn't ask the public what they want. And especially since so many of our um, transportation plans very clearly say that that sidewalks and bikeability is important. I know the bike ped report when it came out, they did a huge engagement. I felt it like it was huge. I mean, we went to several meetings at schoolhouses where they put dots on the walls, but the, it always came back to how do you pay for it? So Nobody, that's what I think is very interesting, but that is what becomes the, you know, if you're, if you're a family and you have something you have to pay for, 
you don't get to make the excuse necessarily that you can't pay for it. You find ways to prioritize it. So when we don't prioritize it, we are saying it doesn't matter. We're prioritizing, we're making the decision, we're making a value decision that paying what 11 times what we spend on roads than we do on sidewalks every year, probably that's maybe even a low number. We're saying that um, roads are more important than sidewalks. We're making that statement. I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course. But I, I take your point. But I, I don't Especially when we continue to say that bikeability and walkability is important to us. That's fine. We have to put our money where our um, where our intention is. Yeah. And we don't. Not even close. Um, because we've had made great strides in the last few years of repairing and inspecting sidewalks a lot more than we did the previous 20 years. Well, again, I would always go back to, and it's not relevant, particularly the reason that things fell into disrepair is because no one liked the policy. It was basically, in my view, civil disobedience. If you someone sent you the letter, hey, go out and repair your own sidewalks, everyone would be like, why would I do that? And so for 30 or more years, no one did it. There was just no enforcement. Little, little enforcement. But again, we've never asked anyone their opinion. So that that's what you want to do next is to have public engagement on? Yes. And is that on side, I mean, the whole sidewalk program? Well, I think you could probably be very comprehensive about it again with um, having sidewalks on both sides of the street where it's not necessary. That policy is inflexible. And we've been asked several times by the affordable housing and the building community to make, and we have been absolutely inflexible on it. Well, I would say, I don't think we've had a discussion. Mayor, I might interject. This is this is Jake Baldwin, Emma. So, um, so a lot of those questions you're asking, are, I think, are being addressed through the pedestrian plan with the MPO is, you know, working towards completing. And I know they did a very robust public engagement process that asked a lot of those questions and, and will, we'll, I think, produce those answers you're looking for. Um, it, but I do want to want to go back and kind of just dis discuss a couple things and, and want to be kind of the scope of the sidewalk problem to begin with. So when I, I personally look at this, I see our sidewalk problem kind of coming in four buckets. Um, one being the sidewalk improvement program. These are the one. These are the sidewalks that we're capable of doing spot repairs on, and that we've made three years of progress on. Um, your next bucket is going to be your sidewalk replacements. These are the the sidewalks that are in such bad disrepair. We actually just need to replace them. Um, your your third bucket is going to be all those brick sidewalks that we, we've kind of been putting on the back burner for years. And then the last bucket, which may be the biggest, are those sidewalk gaps you're talking about. So you put all those four buckets together, and the, you know that's where your estimate gets really really large. Um, so to I don't want to reframe the discussion, um, but but really hear the feedbacks on the sidewalk improvement program, which is. Um, you know, the, the spot repair program. We're going to spot repair what we can spot repair. And so, you know, if, if there's um, a support for looking at alternative or changes to that program, that's what I'm looking for tonight. Or if uh, if the commission's happy with status quo and, and keep proceeding with repairs the way we've done it and work towards that, that 5.4 million goal. So um, I, I just kind of wanted to mm -hmm. offer that information. Yeah, so that's also been one of my problems with it, again, not being comprehensive, is that we have chopped it up into little increments where you almost can't even tell 
where the money comes from. What I mean, it come the money for sidewalks can come from any of four funds. That doesn't if you if I asked you to really show me all that we spent on sidewalks right now, it would it would take you a minute. You'd have to look up in more than one place um, how what where that money was coming from. So the the simple fact that we um, are doing something we say is important in a piecemeal way like that is absolutely a problem. I can't I can't think of anything else where we do it that way. Okay. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm inclined to continue with the SIP program as it is, with a discussion as to um, if we want to look at um, the low income definitions and or the idea of you know once we get them, once they're up to uh, code, then we can look at the possibility of taking them over. And I will maintain forever and ever that the SIP program is in direct conflict and makes inequitable the complete streets policy that does in fact give some people free sidewalks and other people not. And that's a problem. I'm not really sure how we haven't gotten in trouble for that. So, um, Again, I think start, starting where our strategic plan tells us to identify a priority. Okay, bikeability, walkability. We need sidewalks. Let's do engagement and find out how people want us to pay for it. If Jake wants me to wait till MPO uh, gives us their report, okay. But I still think it is absolutely unethical to continue sending people these letters when some people get free sidewalks and some people don't. But the report that the pedestrian plan is doing, that doesn't speak too much to the volume of sidewalk improvement. So it might. It might. And it might even comment. I don't Jessica doesn't appear to be here. Jessica Wartniger doesn't appear to be here, but um I don't I don't know that those things were taken off their table. Jake Baldwin, MSO. Um, I can offer some clarity on that. There was some um, public engagement survey questions surrounding the support for the sidewalk improvement program. I don't recall those statistics are they'll, they'll, they'll bear out in that that um, plan. Um, but the, 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 the pedestrian plan does specifically call out for supporting the continuation of the sidewalk improvement program. I mean, it's Commissioner Sellers. I, I don't mind waiting till to see the pedestrian report to see what data came out of that from the SIP. I, I feel like the overarching question here that I feel like is going to be a lot of agree to disagree is on the funding mechanism piece. I I definitely know that you know engagement is engagement. And we need, but what we're trying to get to is we we all understand that sidewalks need to be repaired, or replaced, bricked, however. It's the funding piece and how that funding, and if this is something that based on our strategic plan rises to the, rises to something that we need to spotlight. And I think for me, that's where I'm at is that we have to get, are we going to be satisfied with the information we receive from the um, pedestrian uh, report 
to say that this needs to be spotlight? Or what is that mechanism? What is it that we need to do or that you all feel comfortable saying that we've we've met the metrics to say that this needs to be, this is something that needs the spotlight, that we need the spotlight and, and find funding around it or build the plan to say that this is what we're going to take on because our strategic plan and our community says that this is something that we need to do. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I do think the pedestrian plan could help us because again, I'm not sure back to the idea of funding. I I mean, I, I hear what everyone here is saying, which is if we find it to be the most important thing, then we should fund it. <laughs> but if it's not the most important thing, then then we shouldn't fund it. And so creating a program that says, I, I'm not sure I support a program that says, hey, we're going to pay for all the sidewalks because we think that's, we think we should. I would be probably in support of a program that as part of a plan prioritized sidewalks as as transportation modes, right? I mean, I'm a big supporter of the yeah. loop, for example, right? That it was creating yeah. something there. Um, I, I think certain sidewalks along certain major roads, very important, you know, because we need those. Um, and so I, I do think the pedestrian plan might say of all the pedestrian things we have to deal with, these are the most important ones. And those are what you should be funding in the CIP. And I think that would help us say, you know, maybe the most important thing is not going to be, you know, fixing the sidewalks on the cul-de-sac, you know, on 16th street, you know, that might not be that important. And so we shouldn't create a program that funds that. So I do think the pedestrian plan will give us some of that guidance. I don't think you'll answer all of our questions. Oh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I think, and, and I, you know, I'll continue to object to the CIP uh, program merely because it was predicated on false numbers um, that no one thought we would ever be able to find money for. Well, what do you mean? This? Oh, the oh, the estimation. I thought you said the, the estimation. The, no, the, the SIP. Oh. Sorry, yeah, the SIP. Yeah. Um, and the commission that that pushed that through simply didn't have the information they needed. Well, now we have the information. And we also have uh, purportedly a mountain of infrastructure money coming to us. Why would we not try to capture it when we know what our need is? We have it right here. I mean, there's other communities who don't even know what their need is. I mean, we've got it. So why would we say no to that if that's available and we can make that program, program more equitable and use um grant funding to do it well that's a whole different scenario you get that yes. a whole different scenario <laughs> your your yeah. whole premise and and really uh the even previous commissions has been well it's great if we could pay for it which is interesting because we don't talk about other things that way we only talk about sidewalks that way right great if we can pay for it well, we've, we've talked, we talk about those, the, the infrastructure we're required to maintain, required to build, required to, to make sure it's up to snuff. The sidewalk maintenance aspect of it because, has not been part of the state law. Well, again, the because the whole way that we have been building things for the past hundred years has been entirely centered on the automobile. Oh, so I don't, of course, yeah. there's not um, a focus on sidewalks. There never historically has been. That doesn't mean it's not the right and equitable thing to do. Yeah, yeah I don't. I don't disagree with that. But. It is Tintill. 
I don't think we told when's Jake the, anything. When's the pedestrian plan come out? Right, that was my next. They're already getting their letters. I'd got mine. Sucker. <laughs> the, the what? My little um, letter like saying. When's the pedestrian plan? The oh yeah, when does the uh, the pedestrian plan come out? Uh, Jake Baldwin, MSO. I believe that's coming out this summer. I don't know the exact date. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. We'll find out at Dave. our next meeting. Yeah, Dave Cronin, City Engineer. I've been, been kind of involved in some of the pedestrian plan uh, review. And so the public comments closed on that. We're making final revisions to that. The MPO is making final revisions uh, to the draft that was released. And so <clears throat> I think that will be early summer that will come uh, to the MMTC for recommendation of approval and then to the City Commission. Uh, may also go to the NPO policy board as well, um, but it is substantially complete at this point. Um, as as in, there might be a few minor changes from the draft that was published, but it should be uh, completed here soon. I, I would say there wasn't in that planning process there wasn't any discussion on um, or questions surrounding uh, funding sources for sidewalk maintenance. Um, just as Jake mentioned, to continue the sidewalk improvement program or making progress uh, on ma maintenance of sidewalks. So just thought I'd add that note. Thanks. Um, and again, I will always say based on the, the sort of false premise that, okay, we want you to fix the sidewalks, but did you tell them it was going to be out of their own personal pocket? Or did they think they were going to use the infrastructure money that we have available to us. Well, I know during the bike ped conversations when they were writing that report, that was the part of the discussion as to how it was paid for. Um, considering that property owners are responsible, is there another way we can fund it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why they said equitable. So. Well. 1052 now. Yeah, I was trying to look out for some reason my uh, agenda wasn't loading. We've got the city manager's report and do we need to have our executive session? Ooh. Does it need to be Sherry in the 11 o'clock? Do I need to add time for that or do we? Um, well, when we're done with this item, if you want to hear the others and it's 11, we'll need to make a motion to accept well, it. But I think it's on the executive session. Is that something that you're asking? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying it. Yeah, I'm saying if we vote to extend it 15 minutes because we think that's going to be what the manager's report is, do I need to add another 15 minutes for the executive session? It is your option. The executive session could be delayed uh, until next week. Uh, it is not time sensitive. It's yeah. just something that we wanted to, to get before the commission, um, but it could be delayed. Okay. Or is your question that the extension needs to happen? Yeah. To accommodate, to accommodate, accommodate the minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. But if. Remember, this is all just to. Just for you all. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think it matters. I do it in. You could do with that. It is that we said. No, I said we got seven minutes. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Craig, do you need more than seven minutes? Mm -hmm. Could be. I'm rarely the one that. <laughs> <laughs> So, so am I hearing pedestrian plan? Yeah. Then then public plan after that. Yeah. 
So maybe is the what the direction would be is for staff to consider. I'm just making this up off the fly here. Staff to consider between now and the time we get the pedestrian plan, a, a possible public engagement process to talk about sidewalks in light of that plan and the strategic plan. Funding sidewalks. Funding sidewalks. Comprehensively. So that's after the plan comes out. I think between now and the, I mean, give them some time. That'd give them that'd give them two months to help come start thinking about a plan that would that would use the pedestrian plan to say now again. What I'm thinking it's going to say is the pedestrian plan is going to say sidewalks are important. Oh, yeah. We all think sidewalks are important. So then we can use that plan to say, well, now that we have that plan, how are we going to how are we going to fund it and to what degree? So use the time between now and then to think about how we would do public engagement around funding that. Right. Because based on what Jacob outlined to us, I mean, you have four buckets. So you have four potential engagement strategies that you can have around sidewalks to the point that this is comprehensive and we haven't looked at it from all the angles. And so not all sidewalks are created equal and having these different bucket of multiple engagements, not deciding what the plan is, but that gives him a lot of creativity as to what this could this could look like to address all four areas of sidewalk needs in our community. Not agreeable. Sure. I concur. <laughs> okay, Jake. Uh, with four minutes left, did that make sense to you? Uh, Jake Paul and MSO, uh, I think I've got what I need. Um, got some direction here to proceed with some public engagement. Um, probably going to provide some answers and update um, kind of a summary on what the surrounding communities are doing. Uh, maybe look at the, the low income definition um, and, and see where that threshold's at. And if there's any interest in, in, in changing that, um, I, I think that's it. I'm probably sure I missed something uh, with the discussion that went on, but um, it, does that sound correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Planning. We're not expecting him to do engagement. Before. Mm -mm. Okay. No, no, no. Make sure to clarify that. Uh -uh. I would also suggest uh, that before we would do that engagement, we're going to check back in with you so we understand what questions we're trying to ask yes. and answer. Okay. And I would say, again, I think that we need to see that plan be voting, approving the plan because that will lead to what questions we wouldn't answer to. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that brings us to commission items. Uh, do you guys want to add 10 minutes here? What do you, what do you think we need in case somebody has commission items? You guys are good? Yeah, just get Okay, I did want to just say and as much as, as quickly as I could how fantastic everyone at the city was working on two days of um, <laughs> near chaos. Um, obviously, the police department and, and the 16 agencies that came and helped us. Um, I went out and with Parks and Rec a couple times and watched how they helped, you know, and watched how they clean up afterwards. It was pretty astounding how fast and efficient they are. Um, and... Um, you know, in addition to shutting everything down for, you know, over 12 hours. So I just wanted to be sure everyone understood how grateful we are and how it really showcased their abilities. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, like you said, all the city staff, I mean, from 
management management on down. Porto is out there with public engagement. You had sanitation. You had roads. You had police. You had fire. You yeah. had everybody. I mean, everybody. It was impressive, and and uh, we got lots of comments. I mean, obviously on social media, but people emailing me and calling me saying that was impressive on all levels, all levels. So appreciate. What was really impressive is that we came back from a 15-point deficit at halftime. <laughs> that was really impressive. <laughs> okay, sorry. We... There you go. Uh -huh. All right, we got two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. Yep. Craig? Um, before you are the... Um, there's several items. Uh, one was the Peasley uh, Tech request. Um, they have depleted funding for tuition assistance and sent a request for us to consider that. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Um, <clears throat> transportation amendments. Um, the, there was a re re financial report for Explore Lawrence. That's something that has, has had some interest, and uh, we, we show those attachments that are there. Um, March sales tax report uh, continued good news in that area, but I think we had already kind of talked about that a little bit. Uh, the ex parte um, note of the coming <clears throat> items, um, just for your awareness uh, when you have conversations to kind of keep track of that so you can do those reports. And uh, agenda items. Happy to answer any questions. Um, oh, this is going to be real quick. Do we need to do anything with the Paisley thing? Um, like, I know that there was discussion on, you know, in terms of funding that there was, uh, I'm not exactly sure how the funding differentiated from years past, but I know that there was a different request this year. Uh, yeah, it, it, as quickly as I can. I mean, uh, we so we allocated all the the funds, the budgeted funds on these. Um, we we based it on requests. So um, there were a submission of requests that probably differentiated from the way it was done in previous years. Uh, one of the requests we received two from Peasley. We funded one. Um, their kind of level funding that they'd been accustomed to is about two hundred thousand. We funded one hundred and thirty. The the requests that they have for one hundred thirty thousand. So when they're coming to us with seventy thousand. And it's kind of um, seeking to be uh, more level with what we they had been accustomed to, even though it wasn't what the the one program request was. But this is a specific purpose and need, and that is to tuition assistance for uh, residents of low income households. So, um, anyway, yeah, is I it something we need to add to our future agenda? Um, that would be the way to do it. We would need a budget amendment to uh, cover cover this um uh yes and we can do that if that's what you'd like to see okay and as as is noted on here from Brett is you know that that may open the door for some other mm. interest this is commissioner so i i mean i i was hoping that kevin was going to be on tonight but i guess we outlast him um because i did just have some questions as far as is it related to tuition assistance and some um, thoughts as far as the program and knowing that I know from on a state level, there are scholarships available based on program needs. And I just wanted to kind of pick his brain a little bit on that to see if that would align with helping with some of his um, budget shortfall. Um, but, uh, 
That's a question that I can ask him directly. I, to your point, I'm a little leery about I'm I'm leery about putting it on on an agenda because again, it will open up a it opens us up to do a lot of revisioning, and especially when we're going into a budget season for the upcoming year, it's going to start to blur some things a bit. And I would prefer to have it on a regular agenda so it can be discussed as to how or if or what we should do about the funding. Because um, otherwise, we there's no answer here. Is there? But are we saying there's a consensus that we think there's opportunity to fund him? I think that's a, that's a good point. We just need to learn more about it. And that's a good time for agenda item. Well, I guess I'm I'm, you know, I'm interested in having the discussion. You know, we've historically funded Peasley at two hundred thousand. You know, when this came up in the budget, you know, we didn't make a a decision or have a discussion up here about hey, should we cut the funding from what we originally did? We've done with Peasley. Um, you know, there was, you know, two recommendations. This was brought forth within the budget. We approved the hundred and thirty. Um, but, you know, I'm certainly interested. I wouldn't be interested in, in going above the 200,000 that we've traditionally funded them, but I'd be interested in having that conversation about funding them at the level we've had for many years um, and the level equivalent to what the county's been funding them. I think that's a discussion worthy to have. And I think that is different than opening the door to others because we'd be, um, having that discussion, having that limited discussion. So I'd be interested in having it on a regular agenda. There you go. Anything else on the city manager's report? Or is that, you know, I only have two yeah. senses. I, mean, that I, I heard enough to say that we had an agenda. I, I heard three. Okay. I heard three. Sorry, I missed yeah. three. I missed third. So then if city manager's report's done, then you'll either need to adjourn and the other two will be deferred or make a motion to extend it. Well, I guess it's just calendar items. Yeah, we don't care about calendar items. Uh, so you okay with executive session? I would, I would motion, entertain any motions. To go on to executive? Or to, to adjourn. I'm open. You guys want executive session tonight or just? I'm here. I, I, I mean, staff is here. I don't want to okay. delay this. I'm, yeah. I've been up since four o'clock yesterday morning. So, but just to be clear, you'll first need to make a motion to extend. The yes. Meeting. So, who wants to make a motion to extend? I move to extend the meeting 16 minutes. <laughs> second. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, you can go now. Oh, okay. hold a second. Uh, do I have a second? Second. She's not seconding. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, I hear a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Nay. <laughs> Why? You and I were together on this. Okay, yeah. that was three to three to two. Okay, so I moved that we recess the executive session for approximately 15 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorney regarding the Kansas statutes pursuant to KSA 75-4319-B2. The justification for executive sessions to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. At the end of the executive session, the city commission meeting will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right, let's go.
Um, oh no, we need to read a statement. Or, oh, we have nothing to report. Nothing to report. Sorry. <laughs> we have nothing to report. Um, so do I have any motions? Move to adjourn. Second. Uh, I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, everyone.